I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration Podcasts. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland, and joining me are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland. And in this episode, we'll be talking about Jersey, the largest of the Channel Islands lying just off the coast of northern France. Jersey is a crown dependency, so it's not actually part of the UK, just like the Isle of Man, which we covered in our first season. Today, Jersey has a population of just under 100,000 and a total land area of around 120 square kilometers or 45 square miles, making it a similar size to the US island of Nantucket or slightly smaller than our old friend Liechtenstein. I know a poem about Nantucket. Please don't. Should I? <laughs> no? Okay. <laughs> While most residents speak English and nominally identify as British, the proximity of Jersey and the other Channel Islands to France has heavily influenced their culture and their history, and French is an official second language. Jersey also has its own local language based on French called Gerier. The island was documented by the Romans, known to them as Caesarea, and was part of the Duchy of Normandy until the early 13th century, when it was reorganized and became a territory in its own right. By the end of the 15th century, Jersey was granted its own governor. An individual, today called the Lieutenant Governor, is the personal representative of the Queen on the island. Jersey was the only part of the British Isles to be occupied by the Nazis during World War II, and was one of the last places in Europe to be liberated. Jersey has one of the highest numbers of cars per person in the world, and because of the historical popularity of Jersey wool, knitted sweaters came to be called jerseys after the island, with the term first recorded in 1837. And yes, this island is the namesake of the US state of New Jersey. It's been calculated that Jersey would fit 189 times into the state of New Jersey, or 95 times if the tide is out. <laughs> That's an impressive statistic that tells you a lot about the coastline. Huh? Yep. Okay, do you want to talk a little bit about what we're going to be uh, speaking about in our various sections coming up in this episode? So kind of a fascinating tidbit I came across in, in one of my sections was that a king was proclaimed king in the town square of St. Helier. And as a result of that, New Jersey's called New Jersey is a bit of a stretch, but there's a direct through line from someone being declared king of England on this small island and its 189 times sized uh, American colony cousin. Mm. And what about you, Mark? I guess dwelling on the knitted produce of the island, uh, I, I'm looking forward to kind of talking about where where, where, where good men go wrong uh, and, and, and knitting takes over. Uh, there's no time for anything else. Okay. Uh, and, and, uh, <laughs> and they become wool-addled, pearl-planing maniacs. All right. Wow. That sounds intriguing. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking about two products that were very important to Jersey in the mid-1800s and are still, I suppose, uh, important to Jersey nowadays. The stereotypical meat and potatoes. Oh, great. Literal meat and potatoes. Yep. And could, could I just mention up top something that you raised about the uh, the size of the island changing so dramatically between high and low tide? Mm. I, I came across something on um, 
what's it called? The the Island Wiki is that the name of the that website we found? It seems to be like a, 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 the, a the very good resource, mm, yeah, a very good resource about the Channel Islands in general, Guernsey, Jersey, and and Sark as well, run by local volunteers. So it it it's got you know it doesn't have fully referenced sources and everything. And one of the things I couldn't get a solid answer on was they're not entirely sure when the island was separated from the mainland. Oh, I might talk a little bit about that. But yes, oh, there, okay. I mean, there's no there's no solid date for it, but yes. Yeah, and like the, there was one date given in, in like 800 AD after a big storm, which seems a little implausible. But this isn't a million miles away from Mont Saint-Michel in northern France and, and Normandy, which is this fantastical-looking castle-type... Castle in the sea, right? With that just one tiny spindle of in a, land. Like a, a, a commune, a whole village. A walled village that, that is accessible at low tide yeah. and is in the sea at high tide. And so this whole area is quite swampy and marshy. And there are stories about people in the early Middle Ages like walking to Jersey from the nearby diocese on the mainland. Mm. And at some point that became no longer possible. I, I, I did hear a reference at one point to craggy island style uh, a big chunk of the island just falling into the sea at one point yeah uh, after a big, a big storm i think i think on the eastern side yeah our geology um angle isn't going to be uh, satisfying some people might like but it, you know they're not as islandy as they might be considered. for sure yeah and it does have i think it's the largest tidal flats relative to its size in the world or something so like it yeah, yeah. it does it does change size dramatically <laughs> between low Must make navigation at night yeah yeah for okay. sure mark i believe you uh, did an interview for this episode yes indeed so uh to the point about a very enervated active local community keeping their history uh, up to date and visible i had ordered a, a book online to do just a little bit of background reading uh, and i uh, found a helpful email in the back of the book saying if you're looking for more information about the history of jersey con- contact the uh, société Jersey's. My name's Luke Davis. I'm not Jersey born, but Jersey raised. I've lived on the island since I was a young child. Um, and I was put in touch with the podcast through um, La Société Jerseyes, which is Jersey's academic society, uh, of which I've been a member since the age of 15 with the history section. So uh, I got a chance to chat to Luke about uh, his experience growing up in Jersey. He's also uh, studying history in university. And so you'll, you'll hear little bits of our conversation popping up throughout the episode. Big thanks to Luke and big thanks to the uh, Société Jersey's. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Luke. Great name. <laughs> Have either of you guys been to Jersey? I, I know I haven't. I've been to Jersey um, in Ooh. 1994. Uh, oh I spent I spent two weeks there on business. Was it? <laughs> it is a very small <laughs> island. Uh, as a child, I walked a good breath of the island. Oh wow! <laughs> Just kind of by walking the beach that's right beside the capital town, you covered about a third maybe of the island just by doing that. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's it's very very beautiful, very chill. Uh, I would very much like to go back. All right. So um, yeah, I, I'm taking the early section this time. Jersey has only been an island from what I from what I could tell for around eight thousand years or so, uh, and so was was pup. very young in terms of a you know a, a, an island, a landmass. So is that kind of ice age? End of the ice last age. ice age, I think, is the end yeah. of the last ice age. So it it along with the other Channel Islands was uh, a part of Normandy, and uh, belongs geologically as well as geographically, to a region called Amorica, which also includes Lower Normandy and Brittany. And the geology of the region differs 
quite significantly from that of uh, Britain, which has its own paleogeographic history. It, even if it leans more British nowadays, it uh, from a from a geological point of view, it's certainly more French. Um, Can I just say, I think I had it wrong in my head. I thought this. I thought the Channel Islands were closer to Calais until I started looking at maps. Mm. Oh right, which is the shortest bit of the English Channel. No, but this is no. very close to Brittany, as you say, and and. And uh, Cherbourg could be the closest French city, I think. Saint Malo, I think, and is significantly closer to France than it is than they are to Britain. Oh yeah, no, I knew that because mm. the French have opinions about it. Yeah, but um, I kind of thought it was in a different place. Like I thought it was further north. Mm. So um, I learned a lot about maps. Yeah, and there will be a map <laughs> in our show notes, which uh, there always is, so you can check out. You know, if you're not sure exactly where we're talking about, then uh, that'll give you an idea. The earliest evidence of human activity in this region dates to around 250,000 years ago when bands of hunters used the caves at La Cote de Saint-Brelade as a base for hunting mammoth and other prehistoric uh, creatures. And this is a a, a really cool actual uh, historical site. There's a whole website dedicated to this site and uh, I would would recommend anybody who's interested in that kind of history uh, to visit the, the website lacotte.org.je that's uh, we'll, we'll include a link to that in our show notes of course Ooh, they've got their own top level domain they do cool. yeah the island itself uh, particularly for its size has a huge number of prehistoric sites uh, but this one is probably the most well known and it's also known as uh, la Creux effets i think is uh, my french is not very good but i think that uh, roughly translates to um the fairies cave oh. and it's a yeah it's a really interesting looking structure on one of the seaward facing cliffs of the island uh, on the the south side i believe okay. uh, and neanderthals are understood to live there at various times up until around forty-eight thousand years ago and it's possibly one of the last or i suppose most recent neanderthal sites in northwestern europe it's also the only site in the british isles to produce late neanderthal fossils and uh, remains of fire have been found there, with the earliest artifacts being dated back to around 238,000 BP. At that time, Jersey was part of a peninsula, uh, as we've mentioned, sticking out from the coast. And uh, this this uh, La Cote de Saint-Berlade would have been a prominent raised landmark on that peninsula. Mm. Uh, but during the last ice age, the sea eroded the coastline, separating first Guernsey and then Jersey from the French mainland. That same erosion is something that uh, modern-day archaeologists have been have been fighting against now to try to preserve this area. So uh, there's a little documentary on um, on the website that I mentioned, which I'm going to stick in a clip from just here. It's just uh, just, but I'd, I'd recommend people check out the full version if 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 they're interested. It's a race against time, according to Professor Clive Gamble of Southampton University. We've got increasing storm activity, and it it undercuts the cliff. So. The sediments, the soil, the deposits in which all these artefacts and bones are preserved are gradually falling into the sea. So there's an element of a race against time to preserve those so they're available for scientific investigation. At the end of the Second Ice Age, the first settlements appeared around Jersey on the coastal plains, uh, and there was sporadic activity in the area by nomadic bands of hunters until the establishment of settled communities in the Neolithic period, established around 4,500 BC. And this is the period when dolmens began to appear on the island. If you're not familiar, dolmens are large rock structures. They're usually sort of table-like in appearance. So you might have um, a number of standing stones on top of which is, is sort of a shelf, mm-hmm. a large flat stone that would, would lie on top of uh, standing stones. I believe the word means stone table. Mm. So it's pretty uh, on the nose. Yep. 
and uh, these typically act as grave markers or at least that's what uh, most archaeologists tend to believe but that's disputed mm -hmm. they, they may serve multiple functions we're not really sure but there's dolmens scattered throughout jersey and the rest of the channel islands uh, as well as throughout the british isles as well um, and Brittany and Normandy for sure also, yeah the, but um the ones on Jersey uh there there are a number of them on Jersey and they were they were built generally between 4800 BC to 2250 BC and uh, there are also numerous passage graves uh those are a kind of burial tunnel or a t tomb uh constructed under under a, a mound of earth and the most famous of these is a, a site called La Hougue B it is one of the largest and best preserved passage graves in western Europe and consists of an 18-meter-long passage chamber covered by a 12-meter-high earth mound. It's quite a significant structure uh, if you look it up. And again, we'll include kind of uh, links and stuff in the show in the show notes and and photographs. But um, is it is that like a Newgrange kind of? Uh, it does look a bit like structure. a bit like Newgrange, and it has a, it has a sort of a fortified tower on top, which I think oh, was added cool. later. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, I I expect so. Yeah, but um. During the German occupation, uh, this site was fortified with barbed wire, trenches, and machine guns, and an observation tower was built on top of it, 26 feet high, oh and it's now been turned into an occupation museum, uh, oh. showing samples of things left behind by uh, the Nazis and, um, you know, just demonstrating some of the some of the events from their five years on the island, which I know you were going to talk about later on, Mark. That seems like a great way to anger the fairies. I would have thought so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, um, like, you know, in, in Ireland, you would never touch your passage tomb if it was in your field for generations you, you would not plant a tree near it yep wouldn't uh, go anywhere near it and but, the um, nazis come along yeah they're barbed wire mm. and they're they're fascism no wonder they were run off into the sea eventually mm -hmm. there's a legend that surrounds this site as well um apparently there was a serpent in a, a nearby marsh that uh or a, a dragon possibly uh, in a nearby marsh that wrought great ha havoc on the island until the senior of hambai uh, came from Normandy and cut off his head, but uh, okay. the the seniors' servant uh, murdered him oh, no. and then returned, oh. uh, boasting that he had slain the monster after it had killed his master. I like this guy, and that it, and that get this, this is even better. The Lord's dying wish had been that his widow should marry his avenger. So like, <laughs> Your husband is dead, but you should marry oh, me. That was his dying wish. Wow! But the the servant then talked in his sleep. Uh, and the lady then learned the truth and had him hanged. Uh, oh. And ever since then, uh, the legend says she raised a great mound over her husband's grave, uh, built on top of a little chapel where masses could be said for his soul. Right. And uh, this romance may have caused the mound to be known as a Lahog Hambi, which could be uh, easily proved to Lahog B. Just to just to extrapolate out, I hmm. mean, so he was sleeping beside her. So yep, his plan did work to a degree. It did. Oh no! Yes, she did oh, marry right, him. Okay. She did marry Excellent. him. Yes. Sorry, I might have left that part out. But yes, she 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 did for uh, for love of her husband. She did marry him. Uh, is is what it says. So well, uh, again, he, no he idea. Price, if any of this is, he, is he must is have true, spoken very I... narratively in his sleep as well. <laughs> mm, exactly. <laughs> and then I. And then I. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then I murdered him. And <laughs> narrating his own dreams, apparently, but. Uh, <laughs> So the, the size and uh, locations of these monuments suggest that uh, social organization over, over a broad area, including the surrounding coasts, was required for the construction of uh, such large mm -hmm. structures. And archaeological evidence also shows that there were trading links with mainland France and the south coast of England even. And then the last thing I want to talk about, in 2012, 
a cache of around 50,000 Iron Age silver coins was unearthed in Jersey, Ooh. which is the largest ever such find in Europe. The coins were thought to date from the year 50 BC, uh, while the armies of Julius Caesar were advancing through France, which you're going to talk about in your uh, section, yeah, I'm no, sure, this, Joe. Yeah, this, this dovetails perfectly. Yeah, uh, and seemingly some people were driven off the coast of France and into Jersey, and they buried this uh, stash of coins where it was uh, uncovered, you know, over 2,000 years later. The coins apparently were, were said to be worth around £10 million when they Dear were unearthed. Dear God. So, um, that's, that's some good interest. Yeah, I mean, that's, so that's some, not too bad. Beginning of the financial industry in Jersey, yep. I suppose. So not too bad for, for Barrier some, coins. Uh, for some Wait, treasure hunters. 2,000 years. Yep. Uh, so, Joe, you want to take over with the year zero? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I'll start at 56 BC, I suppose, right. um, rather than zero on the button. <laughs> because as you say, um, this island was known to the Romans, mm. apparently. Uh, though, obviously, always a little bit hard to tell which islands are being talked about in, in documents that don't have maps and that don't necessarily accurately describe things why didn't they just but, use um, modern names for these places joe lazy i know why did they use their own weird old-fashioned names yeah but finally somebody was writing something down as i say 56 bc i think is when julius caesar conquered gaul northwestern gaul which is modern france more or less france and belgium i think unclear whether they actually went to the islands Obviously, some of their money did. 10 million euros worth. Yeah, but the name Caesarea was given to the island in some documents. So it appears in the second century um, itinerary, which is a document ascribed to the Emperor Antonius, though it was probably not written by him. Any idea why they would have called it after Caesar, no? Uh, okay. Well, he was in the neighbourhood. But he was in the neighbourhood a lot in a lot of places, no? Sure. Um, <laughs> I would have thought. Listen, I, I don't know. There's, 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 there's Caesareas everywhere yeah. in the Mediterranean. Why did the Romans do anything? Who knows? They like to call places after Caesar. Sure. Uh, why why are there so many Alexandrias in Alexander the Great's empire? Yep. It's just it's kind of what you do. Yep. So some believe that there's an island called Andium in the itinerary that's a better match for Jersey than, than Caesarea, but... Uh, what 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 do they know? What do I know? There is an older name, uh, Augia, which is also attested, but the modern name Jersey may well be a corruption of uh, Caesar. So Caesar being abridged into Ger, which I mean, isn't any stranger than Caesar being abridged to Tsar in Russia, uh, where it means emperor over there. E is a common ending in in Germanic languages for islands. Uh, so Jersey and Guernsey and uh, Anglesey in Wales is the same thing. I think even Runnymede, the E in the middle is an island. Mm, okay. So um, lots of place names in and around Britain uh, have this E-Y ending. And the, the Jer may well come from Caesar and the older name is Caesarea. But as I said, there's no firm evidence Romans actually actually occupied the place, but there's plenty of Roman-era artefacts have been found. A stash of coins was found around Gory Castle, and there's a place in that vicinity called Caesar's Fort, traditionally. So, again, there's folk memory of this. And there's also the ruins of a Gallo-Roman temple in the Leyland headland region, a place called La Pinacle, which would have been the, the religious beliefs of the people living in Gaul, in Roman Gaul, following the Roman occupation. It's also thought that maybe vernacular Latin may have come to the island in, in this time, which is the starting point of a Romance language that would eventually become Gerier, arguably. Because we don't really know what people spoke before that. 
in this this area, possibly Celtic languages, mm. but um, I don't think there's any remnants of that. In the fifth to sixth century, uh, something happened that I wasn't aware of. Why do you think they speak a Celtic language in Brittany? From memory, from like secondary school history, it was just one of the areas that were settled from the central German Celt zone. Uh, and I guess it would have been a bridge then mm. to kind of Kelting up the rest of the British Isles as well. Yeah, that's what I always thought too, but we're wrong. Okay. Uh, so in the 5th to 6th century, uh, the area now known as Brittany was invaded by by migratory Britons from um, from Britain. The Brits? The, the British Britain Brits? Yeah, they, they, they started colonising. <laughs> okay. Early. Wow. Uh, so, so, like the, the the for want of a better word, indigenous population of Britain were Celtic speaking. Mm. You know, language related to Welsh or Cornish. You know, British languages. And they, when the Roman Empire collapsed in Britain, were under various economic and social pressures. I mean, they were being raided by the Irish on one side, and uh, I don't think the Anglo-Saxons heard of just yet. But there were Germanic tribes and Scandinavian tribes causing trouble for for the the British population. And so, some of them migrated from Devon and Cornwall, in particular, to Brittany. And from there, even on to, I think, Galicia, northern Spain. Okay. So they brought several evangelizing saints with them who set up monasteries in the kind of Celtic Christian style. And many towns on the mainland are named after these people. All right. This wave is probably what brought Christianity to Jersey. So it came from Britain south. Wow. Okay. uh, Rather than from nearby French mainland. That is not what I would have expected. No. So was was France like Northern France pagan at that stage? What what was Northern France if it wasn't Christian? Yeah, I don't know how solidly Christian mainland France was, but the the kind of Christianity that seems to have made it to Jersey first seems to be the the, the Celtic kind. So in five eleven, Jersey was part of the Kingdom of Neustria, which was under the ultimate rule of Frankish kings. Though I'm not sure how much. They knew about that. Right, okay. Among the early Christian saints associated with Jersey was a man who there's a lot of historical dispute about, but because he is the one who gave his name to the capital of Jersey, he's important, uh, St. Helier. Uh, so he's credited with bringing Chris- Christianity to the island, but, uh, you know, there are other clerics who are much better recorded in history uh, than, than this guy who we mostly know about from the Actus Santorum, which is this kind of collection of hagiographies and stories about saints from much later. All right. According to the Acta, he was born to pagans in Belgium. He was a miracle child. His pagan parents went to a local Christian. They couldn't have children. He prayed with them. They got pregnant and demanded the child be raised, you know, given to the church uh, to be a priest. They went along with that for a while and, you know, while he was doing his training, he uh, was able to negotiate with rabbits to over, who overran the garden, asked him to share the vegetables. He cured blindness. He removed the snake from a man's mouth. <laughs> Loads of miracles. Classic ailments. Removing a snake from a man's mouth does not sound like a, a common ailment. Yeah, no. when, when you were sick in the 500s, you were really sick. Uh, there's a snake living yeah. in my mouth. <laughs> and it, it doesn't sound like that much of a miracle, really, either, to be honest. Yeah, true. Somebody's not a believer. <laughs> anyway, so... so um. His parents kind of went back on their deal. They they wanted their son to stop being trained by Cunibert, the, the saint who was training him, and so they had him killed. Hellier, however, um, didn't like that. He fled to the French mainland, uh, probably to the Contentin Peninsula, which is the bit of the French mainland nearest the Channel Islands. He was taken in by Saint Marcouf, who baptised him, 
And then they allegedly went on a mission to Jersey, which in this text is called Gersut or Agna, which again is kind of like Augia that we saw earlier. Oh, right. This story claims the population was only 30 people, having been devastated by Viking raids. And he lived on a rocky islet near to Elizabeth Castle, oh, right, uh, yeah. which is a current current castle, for about 15 years. And it's traditionally said to have been martyred around 555 by raiders who decapitated him. And then he walked with his dismembered head uh, along the route of the causeway that currently connects that little islet to the mainland. Now that's what I call a miracle. <laughs> yes. So this caused the raiders to flee and saved Jersey and all of its 30 people. And there's pilgrimages on the 16th of July every year to commemorate this. So that's that's the legendary saint. The more historical figures include a British-born Breton bishop, St. Samson of Dahl. He led a band of Cornish Christians to settle here in 525, which I suppose importantly is earlier in St. Helier would have been there if he were real. Um, so I think Samson does get a better claim on being the first Christian on the island. In 550, uh, Childebert, the son of Clovis, king of the Franks, gave a place called Augia to Samson. So Very again, nice. that's probably Jersey, who was then Archbishop of Dahl in Armorica. So that's that kind geological of, region. You yeah, mentioned yeah. It's kind of modern day Brittany yeah. would be. Brittany and Normandy, I think. Was, call uh, it. Yeah. The pointy out bit at the top of France. Yeah. And the neighbouring islands were also given to Samson. There's also a St. Brelade. You mentioned that the cut to St. Brelade earlier. So he's an important saint, also known as Bran Wallator. He was another British saint who might have visited and definitely got a chapel named after him. And he's worth mentioning because the Fisherman's Chapel, which is beside St. Brelade's parish church, is one of the few remaining medieval churches in Jersey. Hmm. Uh, the Reformation in the 16th century was really bad for archaeology and history. Um, 50 churches were destroyed oh, wow. on this quite small island and yeah the fisherman's chapel is one of the few remaining examples of these kind of small squash chapels with beautiful um, illustrations on the roofs and so on which is worth checking out this island is is 50 around, around 50 square miles mm-hmm. so if you had 50 churches mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a church every square mile <laughs> that's too many churches yeah. Joe <laughs> maybe too many it's yeah. not if everyone goes to mass and you have to walk 50 is too much and yeah, they were, they were made of this kind of cement made of uh, like ground up limpets and boiling seawater, which is pretty islandy. Very islandy, yeah. It's called a fisherman's chapel because it's the Chapelle de la Pêcheur, which is fisherman in French. If, spell, if you spell pêcheur with a, a, a little circumflex over the E. But there's no real evidence that there were any fishermen's guilds or anything in the region that would have supported it. So it may actually just be a... The Peshur may be sinners, which is a slightly different spelled word, and people much more need, in need of a chapel. So, In 803, we have a record of Charlemagne sending the abbot of Fontenelle here on a commission, again under the name Baugia. Then in 873, a much more important thing happened, which was that the, the Normans began invading the western coast of France. Right. The Normans were Scandinavians. It's actually not entirely clear whether they were Danish or Norwegian. No one really cared after they'd settled in Normandy. But uh, they were Vikings of some sort, causing a lot of trouble to the Franks. As Vikings tend to do. They, they caused trouble to everybody. Mm. So they did. So Jersey and the Channel Islands were subjected to these piratical raids also. I did see some one source that claimed that St. Helier was killed by Normans, but I don't think that really makes sense, uh, given it's 300 years this later. Is before or after he had his head chopped off? 
<laughs> I mean, three hundred like, years after he first had his head chopped, he, he was off. there. Oh. Three hundred years later, they took the yeah. the head out of off of him like a like an NBA point guard, just ripped it out of his hands <laughs> and just whipped it into the sea. Finally, killing so, killing Saint Helier. Sorry, I'm just putting it on notice that I I have my doubts about the uh, veracity uh, of these stories. Many of these stories, yeah, yeah. hell yeah. Hell yeah. So the Normans uh, in this time, they, they besieged Paris like they were sailing up rivers and causing a lot of trouble. So eventually King Charles the Simple of the Franks um, chose to recognise that the Norse occupation of northwestern France wasn't going away and recognised Hrolf Haraldsson, better known as uh, Duke Rollo of Normandy. Hmm. He, he recognised him as, a, he said, do you want to be a duke? You just have to convert Christianity, swear fealty to me, and could you defend us from Vikings, please? <laughs> and this guy was named yeah. King Charles the Simple. I mean, that does sound like a very simple... That sounds like the kind of plan that you could draw with crayons. Like, <laughs> Yes, I think as simple as in this straightforward rather than the dim son of Charles the Bald, so, you know... Uh. That's a demotion, surely. Bold is okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, Rollo now being a, a loyal French subject and no longer a Viking was, uh, <laughs> was put to task. Oh, so he, he took the deal. Wow. Yeah. Maybe he's a simple one. It's a great deal. He's like, I get, I get you've seen how big Normandy is. Like, he's a, I am a, I am a raiding pirate. Oh, you want me to rule a, you know, a sixth of France? Fine. We'll do farming. Farming's easier. Right, yeah. And they go on to, like, colonize, uh, well, England, we'll, we'll get to that, mm. and, like, Sicily. So the Normans did okay for themselves. Yeah. Right, so in, in 933, the second Norman duke, William Longsword, classic Scandinavian name, he annexed the Contantum Peninsula, and with this, the Channel Islands that are next door to them. Uh, and so they passed out of the control of Brittany. So, as we talked about earlier, the, the Britons had colonised this area and it became part of the Breton world. Now the Normans were sort of annexing parts of um, that world. So this would probably be when Norman French became a language on the island and Gerrier that we talked mm. about is is considered a Norman French language. So this is probably when, when that arrives and starts to develop its own unique flavour. Uh, Norman cultural influences also included the introduction of the feudal system with, you know, serfs and fiefs and all that stuff. Um, yay! Norman law still forms a big part of Jersey law today, so that's a continued impact. And a lot of the agriculture was probably redeveloped in this time because uh, the Viking raids had really been bad for agriculture and staying aliveness <laughs> of the local population. Right. And one of the early fiefdoms established was the Der Carteret family, which still, I think, turn up in jersey oh i've heard of them yeah they turn up uh, yeah they, they pop up a few times throughout history so they, they're a long-standing fiefdom from this uh so big event for the normans 1066 you might have heard of william the conqueror um a great day and the lovely battle he had at hastings so he he beat king harold of england who was i think he was danish was king harold so england hadn't been ruled by a Briton in quite a while it was really which kind of Viking gets to be in charge, mm. the Northy ones or the French ones. And so he becomes king of England. Uh, he continued to hold this the Duchy of Normandy separately. So he was the Duke of Normandy, which was still in fife to the King of France. And also separately, he was the King of England. So he didn't merge his territories. He had two different right. 
jobs. Confusing. Yeah, well, I suppose otherwise England would become subject to France. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. Is that like I couldn't I have that? Just, no way. He couldn't be his own king. Yeah. In 1080, Jersey was divided into three ministeria called de Gorwak, de Grocherio, and de Crapudwa. The the what the what? Not sure how important those are. Each of these had four parishes, and these parishes' borders have been more or less fixed since the Norman times. So I think there's about... There's 12 parishes now, yeah. right? And they're still an important part of the administration of the island in a way they're not in France post-French Revolution, or post-Napoleon, I suppose. And in England, parishes aren't as big a deal as they used to be either. True. But on Jersey, they still are. And uh, parish churches were built up at this time, so a lot of the churches would have Norman history and Norman architecture. You'll still see that. As I said, Normandy and England were separate entities, and occasionally they'd have different rulers. So, like, William the Conqueror's two sons had a war with each other, and for a period, one was Duke of Normandy and one was King of England, and it got messy. But they'd usually come back together. But that was all to change permanently during the wars we talked about in our Runnymede episode. Thinking, yeah. yeah, so King John of England had some wars with Philip II of uh, France over various things, and a guy called Peter de Preo in 1200 was made governor of the Channel Islands by King John. So he, he was the younger brother of a Norman noble family. So didn't have much prospects of inheriting the land. And he'd been Richard the Lionheart's standard bearer on the Crusades. So he fought with Richard in the wars against France to retain Normandy. And in one of the documents appointing him is the first use of the term balifus in Latin with respect to the islands, which is bailiff in modern English. And these islands would later become called the Bailiwick of Jersey. Mm. So that term's starting to turn up here. When John was king, so none of us like King John, he was... He was, he was bad King John. Yeah. <laughs> he retreated from Normandy, never to return, in, I think, about 1203, 1204. And Peter was left to defend Rouen, which was the capital of Normandy, and he would eventually surrender that. So the, the governor of the Channel Islands surrenders Normandy to the king of France, Normandy was lost, uh, Peter returned to England, um, but he was not as badly received as you might have thought, and he brought with him the Channel Islands, of which he was still governor. Okay. He still possessed them. They Something. hadn't gone with the, with the surrender, and so they came under control of the British crown as a particular territory of the British crown rather than um, as part of the Duchy of Normandy. So that link was split in 1204. Right. Hmm. And so now Jersey, Guernsey, Sark, and the other Channel Islands are just sort of... Are their own thing. Their own thing. Yep. We are originally part of the Duchy of Normandy. Just how we get our connection with the United Kingdom was through William the Conqueror and the invasion of 1066. So we like to often say that it was, it was us who conquered England rather than an, an island away from Britain uh, that was actually conquered by the British for once. It's a nice little back and forth <laughs> so this relationship went back and forth and it was reaffirmed many times throughout history uh, but particularly 1204 is a key point which Jersey was put under what's called the bailiwick system um, and essentially this meant that a bailiff was appointed who was deputized to what was then known as the warden today known as the governor or the lieutenant governor of the island appointed by the king or queen and Originally in 1204, uh, 12 jurats, 12 individuals um, referred to as the island's best men, uh, were appointed to 
help give judgment on legal matters, which included law and all through serious and petty crimes. The only exception was um, the charging of, of treason. Uh, there's a character called Eustace the Monk, who was an English Baker. employed pirate. <laughs> Sorry. He'd been he'd been employed to to wreck the heads of Normandy from Guernsey. However, he switched sides um, and allowed with France during John's war against the barons, the rebel barons that eventually resulted in Magna Carta. And so, at twelve fifteen, he was raiding the Channel Islands for France. Ah. And in the Treaty of Lambeth, the English were able to convince King Louis to give up claim to the English throne and to accede that since he'd failed to capture the Channel Islands in their entirety, they were still the possession of England. And so Eustace the monk and his brother and his followers were removed. I think Eustace was executed. But, uh, wow, wow. Why wouldn't you? And that brings me to 1259, the Treaty of Paris, which brought an end to centuries of conflict between the Plantagenets in England and the Capitans in France. Henry II of England gave up all claims to the Duchy of Normandy, except the Channel Islands, which England had not lost possession of. So the treaty said any islands that the King of England should hold, he would retain as peer of France and Duke of Aquitaine. So still as a vassal to King Louis. Mm. And that inequality built into the treaty would cause further conflicts in the future, but it's not really our business today. So the islands were never absorbed into England. And from this point on, they had some form of self-governance. They have wardens or captains or governors, and they would keep their connection to the Diocese of Coutances on the French mainland for 300 years. But this is this is where the connection shifts more so to England than to France, correct? Yes, yeah. yeah. But a distinct political entity mm. that's neither French nor English, but is belonging to the English crown. Yes. Okay. All right. Uh, shall we take a quick break? Yeah. And come back just after this. through the next 340 years of history uh but i'm gonna do it at a fair clip because um there's uh it, you know, hold on to your hats boys and girls yeah it, 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 there's not a, a not, not a lot of you know landmark uh, events in this period as as joe kind of flagged uh jersey's now in the front line uh it's very close to france and therefore very attackable uh and it is it is attacked quite a lot uh I think it was uh, in in your section. It was it was twelve oh four. There was a there was a battle. I think there was also one in twelve fourteen, twelve ninety four, in thirteen thirty six. It was attacked. That was part of this larger conflict, which involved uh, King David the Second of Scotland, uh, who was the son of Robert the Bruce, who is, is kind of one of the people Braveheart was based on. But he was a much rubbisher version of his famous father. He would at one point try to offer Scotland to pay for his ransom debts to England. Uh, so great times for Scotland there. Okay. 1373, uh, Jersey was attacked uh, again, uh, excitingly, by a guy called uh, Bertrand du Guesquelin, who was uh, apparently a famous French general uh, at the time. He was nicknamed the Eagle of Brittany or the Black Dog of Brussillande. 
uh, also attacked in 1380. Good names. Very very good names. Uh, He was attacked in 1380, 1403, and 1406, and I think some other times as well, but those are the ones I could find. This is all by France, right? All by France, yes. Um, Okay. So uh, just a kind of a word on population. Uh, the Jersey Doomsday or Domesday book, um, the, the far more famous one is, is on uh, the mainland of the UK, uh, I think compiled after 1066, kind of take account of all of this new stuff that the Normans had, had just got after uh, uh, Battle of Hastings. But uh, the Jersey uh, Doomsday book was compiled in 1331. Um, and there has been suggestion that there were about at least 2,000 houses at that time. And assuming an average of five persons per house, that gives you about 10,000 people on the island. Wow. Um, St. Uin, uh, I think that is in the far east of the island, was the most densely populated parish. And in the following century, part of its lands were lost to the sea. Uh, so now it's one of the three least populated parishes. The island militia uh, was set up in 3037, now known as the Royal Militia of the island of Jersey. Uh, and it has existed to this day, apart from a short break between 1946 and 1987. Another comment just about um, the Black Death this time. Uh, so in 1348 to 49, the view is that it was about 30 to 40% fatality rate. And by the early 1400s, the population may have uh, fallen to about four to 5,000. So wow. it, it really <sighs> devastated the island. And in 1339, the island was uh, raised to the ground, as in raised with an A-Z-E, the bad kind of raised. And I guess it kind of stands to the amount of times it was invaded, but uh, this was pretty common at the time. It was it was very hard to kind of um, keep buildings upright on the island of Jersey because it kept getting invaded. To that point, 1461, it was attacked by the French. By the French? By the French, no less, yeah. With <laughs> shocking stuff. I'm just waiting for the Mongolians to invade. The, so this is the uh, Count du Molevrier. So he was supporting the Lancastrian side of the War of the Roses. That dog. Why not, you know? Uh, uh, so he took the castle at the Mont de Augui, uh, which is um, uh, my attempt at pronouncing that. But that's on the far eastern edge of jersey and, and that's now called gory castle we, we've mentioned it before that's the place i call gory e- exactly it's, it's the same mm. same exact place uh, and he held it for seven years uh until it was retaken under siege by some british lad called richard harleston this saga kind of continues a little bit um this action by richard harleston uh would make him very very popular on the island understandably uh, and he was appointed captain of the Channel, Channel Islands, which I think was a, a new role at the time. Um, and he built an extra tower in the castle, which is a very good thing, because he himself would end up under siege there in that same castle, as he hadn't recognised the victory of Henry Tudor, a.k.a. Henry VIII's dad, over Richard III. Uh, his Wikipedia page says his daughter had 21 children, so were probably all descended from Richard Harleston. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... So, uh, uh, as I mentioned, this, this gory castle, or Mont Orgui, um, it was first mentioned in, in 1212, and for several hundred years, it was, you know, it was the castle on Jersey. Uh, it overlooked the main approach from the mainland, um, and as I say, it was the main bastion of strength uh, until about 1600. It was superseded then by Elizabeth Castle, which we've mentioned a few times in the past. Um, it was a big issue for this castle that it was overlooked by a nearby hill, um, not at the outset. That seems like a design flaw in any castle. Like that's that's just poor castle building. 
initially that was fine but then once kind of gunpowder made its way to the island in, in mm. you know decent numbers um yeah it was just a kind of a large house really it was no longer an effective <laughs> castle the, the, the old castle is done uh but it still still remains standing to this day and actually you know since then it wasn't really an effective kind of you know castle but they used it as a prison uh they used it as, as quarters for soldiers and every now and then they kind of go, this place is too disgusting to put, put prisoners in. Let's put soldiers in. And then it's too disgusting even for them. Let's put nobody there. And then eventually somebody else would kind of turn up and they go, eh, let's use it again because <laughs> it's still there. And eventually the Nazis would actually, they, they would, I think, build rooms into it and so on and, and use it again for housing soldiers. Mm, so perfect it was place used for them, right huh? up until the 20th century. Going, going on in 1481... At the request of Edward IV, the Pope issued a papal bull of neutrality, basically saying no fighting within sight of the people of Jersey to stop all of that raising that I mentioned. Uh, so, um, oh, that's yeah. Nice. It was basically the Pope stepped in and said, "This is nuts, guys. You're just like making this really hard for the people, and they're they're people too. They're they're good Christian people, and I'm I'm putting my arm around them. So, sugar off was was the idea, and that was the last for two hundred years. So, uh, you know." good on him i guess that was that was nice for the the 12 people that were left living on jersey at that point yeah exactly they, they got into knitting they were no longer being yeah. raised so they had a bit of time to work on their knitting game yeah, um, yeah. so this developed as a, as a cottage industry kind of around this time and would really explode in the 1500s um and you know knitted jerseys i think we mentioned are kind of that's why we call sweaters jerseys. That's that's, yep. that's why that is, because they're from here. Correct. Um, they're the really famous garment, but it was actually through woolen stockings that they would make a lot of their, their money. And it was so lucrative that they would pass temporary laws to stop people knitting mm-hmm. when the island needed people to, for example, harvest crops or bring in seaweed or go out fishing. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's so knitting uh, was like a like the 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 crack cocaine of uh, of Jersey in the fifteen hundreds. Pe- people from Jersey, <laughs> they just straight up love knitting. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Going forward again, I kind of looked at population. There was a letter sent by a guy called Henry Cornish, Lieutenant of Earl of Hertford. He estimated that there was uh, one thousand four hundred eighteen houses in fifteen forty one. So again, assuming five people per house uh, gives us a population of about seven thousand one hundred. So it's, it's it's kind of recovering from from the thirteen hundreds when it was. It was decimated means one out of ten it was halved the population was basically halved by the black death wow but much worse than being decimated five times worse so in 1542 uh there was a new castle built uh, st albans fort and that was followed as we said by elizabeth castle that was built i think in 1590 um and then finished off and named in, in 1600 uh, mark did, did you have who was the governor of jersey when elizabeth castle was built uh, so I believe that's the year 1600 when it's completed. Uh, so I've not really loved Elizabeth. Uh, he, he was very can you, keen. Can you, can you think uh, of a pirate was, who liked Elizabeth? He was, he, was, he was rather randy for Elizabeth, frankly. Sir Walter Raleigh. Ah. Sir Walter Raleigh. Ah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so I think he, he was responsible for the building of Elizabeth Castle, right? So I think he might have been responsible for the naming. Mm. I think... Uh, for sure. I think he, he kind of came in quite at the end of that story. Elizabeth Castle was kind of in the bay, St. Albans Bay, uh, right beside uh, modern day St. Helier. Uh, at this point, apparently the view was that, I guess because it's brought up in Elizabethan times and the Armada and all that, invasion was seen as, as likely really from the kind of the Spanish as as from the French themselves, so um, that was geopolitics had kind of overtaken uh, Jersey's initial uh, problems with their neighbours. And of course, Jersey must have been affected by the Reformation. So we're now Queen Elizabeth, well Henry the Eighth, 
brought England into the Protestantism and then Queen Mary brought it back and then Elizabeth brought it back to being Protestant again. So the the Pope's papal bull isn't going to hold much water it, um, after the excommunication of Elizabeth. So yes, yes and no. I th- I think that um, this this period is I I haven't qu- I haven't got quite got a beat in it because there's a couple of just kind of factoids here that Jersey remains a part of the Normandy diocese of Coutances on the mainland until 1569. Yeah. Um, in 1553, there was a, the Book of Common Prayer was translated in French, which is obviously kind of quite a Protestant move. But I I think just generally the kind of the pace of the Reformation here and the kind of the, the Protestantification. It's a bit slower. Yeah, exactly. It was a bit, a bit slower. And just kind of practically, there's just so much contact with the French that uh, it, it yeah. wasn't really, you know, it wasn't really quite as pointed as it was in, in, in some areas of the mainland. But it, it is interesting that they're putting the Book of Common Prayer into French. That's kind of the core document of the Church of England. And it was in English. For sure, for sure. And uh, I guess that's the point, is that England is trying to extend so their... translating into French is a real statement of intent, like you should be worshipping in your language, and your language is clearly French at the moment. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but I guess that's kind of a, the, a pretty practical mindset rather than a kind of a dogmatic mm. one, uh, which which yeah, which yeah, was the style at the time in, in, in Reformation circles. This is a, a good context to view the next point in, which is that in 1572... Um, the Huguenots, who were French Protestants, were massacred by the French Catholics, and many fled to Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I one must assume seeing it as a sort of a you know a, a safe haven for Protestants, um, and they brought where you could still speak French. Well, well, I guess it's pretty convenient for them actually in a lot of ways. But um, yeah, so it brought a very very white form of diversity to the island, um, and in that, I, I think it also kind of coloured Jersey society because the Huguenots were, were quite. Uh, austere quite strict and pious and so on um and mm. that influx of of um bummers uh kind of uh, yeah. kind of well, uh, they were essentially uh, calvinists they were calvinists yes exactly very 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 strict yeah, and so and that uh, i think there I, I i read a little bit on this and i'm not going to pretend i i took all of it in but there seems to have been a, a reasonable amount of dispute between like about what kind of protestant jersey would be mm. like scotland was presbyterian largely and so the official kind of protestantism up there is is quite calvinist um where england church of england's a bit more catholic flavored but protestant Mm. uh, with bishops and so on and i did read about some like they actually forced a dean on the island who was a proper anglican right to sort of bring them into the fold of what england was doing uh, at some point in this era, I'd say the Huguenots had some involvement in that sort of church destruction stuff that we talked about earlier. These complicated, very Catholic churches—they don't—they don't suit us, right? Yeah, I guess that's so. The there's point. a bit of a battle over the soul of um, how worship would be done. Exactly, what kind of not a Catholic they would be? Uh, yes, which flavor? So uh, we'd mentioned already the the the, the wool uh, manufacturing fervor uh, of the island. Um, farming and sea trading uh, were slowly developing over this period. Um, but uh, I did see mention that there, there's kind of theories that uh, because there's so much trade between Jersey and uh, mainland UK or mainland you know, Britain as it was, um, that that might have been one of the routes that the Black Death got to mainland Britain. Uh, so... Uh, it, oh. it turns out the UK is quite bad at disease control, uh, which is surprising to me. Uh, and the last thing I was going to mention is that um, uh, 
Jersey was very strong on fishing, but I did see mentioned that because of the kind of the you know the Reformation taking hold in England, I guess they started eating a lot more red meat because there was less less of this kind of the earlier form of the kind of fish on Friday thing uh, that you know to to be to be a good Catholic you you need to be you know eating eating a pebble and just whipping yourself. Um, and I guess you know, fish were seen as yes. like a lame, a, a rubbish form of you know, not 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 really meat. They're kind of you know. Yeah, no, Catholics would have fasted on Friday and also Wednesdays at some periods. Oh God! So there was a lot of fish got eaten, and uh, yeah, taking that off the agenda is bad for your fishing industry. Exactly, and, and uh, interestingly, there was also mention of of how Jerseymen would go to Newfoundland at this time because Newfoundland had been discovered mm-hmm. was opening up for fishing. Um, and what they would do is they go to Newfoundland and they'd fish, 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 and they'd bring it down to Portugal and Spain and sell it there so they, they had to adapt uh but uh yeah that was um that was that was what they were up to during this period apparently a lot of them settled in newfoundland and also in southampton which is much nearer to home but i think is where a lot of the newfoundland trade was based in mm. well it's a, it was a, you know it was and still is a huge, a huge huge port so yeah, it makes a lot of sense yeah. so jersey's going global <laughs> we shall see so, Mark, I believe you had a had a piece of music that you wanted to insert here. Uh, yeah, so it's it's a a band that uh, that uh, published music in uh, Gerier in in the local kind of old uh, Norman French, mm. uh, and they're called Bad Lebec, uh, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, so <laughs> please enjoy the the musical soundings of I think Bad Lebec. Existe un petit coin hernomé par tout le monde, ouais, clairoué, donc guetter, on a Il n'y a aucun pays qui peut fournir ce nega, car dans tout l'univers n'a qu'un jet. Je n'ai pas eu ton nom, sinon tu es titil, ben on vit à tout étranger. Que je sais la compagne ou notre magnifique ville, j'en me gêne, c'est son bel et longi. All right, so we just blitzed through uh, about 300 years of history. Thanks very much for that, Mark. Joe. 17th century where are we at there's going to be some big highlights uh, of jersey jersey's political history and some Ooh. real lowlights as well emotional roller coaster here we go yes it's gonna be fun so um we mentioned walter raleigh we did just before the break i think and he, he is a bit of a roller coaster at the beginning of the 1600s he was um deposed in 1602 as governor of jersey by the new king james stewart uh, james of scotland and now england and he was, uh, Raleigh was imprisoned in the Tower of London, so his star fell. Okay. A guy called Sir James Payton was installed as the governor, and uh, he set about trying to root out Calvinism and sort of establish Anglicanism as the state religion, the kind of firm state okay. religion over the coming decades. Um, Payton wasn't really a fan of democracy <laughs> either. Um, okay. And there is this, this, this ongoing tension between the governors who were sort of sent by the crown and the bailiffs who were sort of more internally 
yeah. rulers of the island. So I don't know if the term bailiwick of Jersey has come up yet, but that's, that's it is, yeah. the official name mm-hmm. or has been the official name. And that's a bailiwick yeah. is a place ruled by a bailiff who we nowadays think of as the guy who like comes and takes your sofa and puts that in the street when you're being evicted. But in ancient Norman legal setting, they had a lot more of a kind of judicial and government, okay. governmental role than than that. They've been shrunk like sheriffs kind of went from being the baddies in Robin Hood to, you know, cowboy hunters. Name names evolve. And so the 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 people that Peyton was often at odds with is a group called the States General at this point, which seems to kind of spring into the stage as a term in the 1600s. And it's a kind of a, this is the States General is a kind of a parliamentary body. Um, democratic would be a strong word, but I think elected by the rich people or the landowners. Okay. Um, but, you know, internal rather than from the English crown. All right. So things were quiet for a few decades. Um, so some highlights I found in a, a chronology of the islands in the 1600s have things like 1615. Philip Pico, prohibited from knitting in the company of girls. <laughs> 1616, spire of St. Martin's Church, struck by lightning as churchgoers enter. Was that because of Pico? He was too, too, too much knitting in the presence of girls and he burned down the church? Maybe. It really, really points that raise more questions than... Um, and provide answers and uh, I didn't look into more detail about Pico's uh, knitting problems uh, an important fact uh, thing that happened in 1618 was that the Privy Council in, in, in England ruled that the bailiff has precedence over the governor according to the laws of Jersey and so the governor becomes this military figure in, in charge of the defence of the island Okay. Uh, and the bailiff at this point Jean Herault he started wearing red robes at this point to signal his authority as a kind of a, a legal, um, judge-like uh, character. And so that tradition continues to this mm-hmm. day. Yeah. We have non-elected officials within the state's assembly who can have a voice but don't vote. Um, the most important of these is the bailiff. I was appointed by King John back in 1204. And... The bailiff is essentially works as the speaker of the house and mediates and he keeps everything running and has the presiding voice. Sat right next to him, but seven inches lower down, is the governor of Jersey. The governor and the bailiff are both appointed by Her Majesty the Queen. Um, but the reason that the governor is sat seven inches lower goes back to an historic debate from uh, 1618, where there's a sort of dispute between who had precedence over what. And it's essentially a symbolic act to say the bailiff is presides above the governor, but only within the sort of political sphere. Um, the governor can have a voice, doesn't have a vote, um, but traditionally only uses his voice on key occasions to make speeches on behalf of the crown. A guy called John Prynne was exiled here for writing pamphlets that were too Puritan in 1637. He'd go on to have a starring role in a being um, a fan of Puritan ideas, Oliver Cromwell, you might have heard Good of Oliver boy. Cromwell, he he released John Prynne and he played a role in both Cromwell's carry-on and also the restoration of the monarchies. This guy played for all the teams, but we'll get to that. I found that Daniel Defoe, the author of Robinson Crusoe, wrote about his visits to the island in 1733 and I thought a quote from his book would be a good way to set up the next three decades he stated that the inhabitants behaved very valiantly in the defense of charles the first and his son charles the second 
but were at last reduced by the irresistible power of the English Parliament, although they are supposed to have been the last who submitted to the fate of the times by capitulation, equally advantageous and honourable. And so, this brings us to what's called the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, various English civil wars, and also an uprising in Ireland and an uprising in Scotland, and lots of wars. That doesn't sound like us. Essentially, the two strands that are at war are Parliament okay. and the King. Okay. So you've got the Royalist Cavaliers, who are pro-King and pro, I suppose, autocratic rights of the King, and the Parliament, the parliamentary forces tend to be Puritans and radical Protestants, and they want to take power into the hands of Parliament and away from the king. So you're probably rooting for the parliamentarians, but you probably wouldn't have much fun if you ever met them. Uh, you, you, you wouldn't want a holiday <laughs> yes. with them. You do want them to establish your, you know, kind of democratic elements of your state 300 years in the past. Yes, as someone who likes republics, mm. um, I, I, I do have to point out that Oliver Cromwell, the leader you of this... You love Cromwell. That's what you're saying. <laughs> you love It's Cromwell. not what I'm saying. He, he does book the trend. He does make you like kings, at least one specific king. The thumbnail of what happens is, is that the crown forces are going to lose. Oliver Cromwell is mm-hmm. going to become Lord Protector of, of England. And Jersey kind of sticks to the royalist side for quite a while, as, as Defoe points out. So a key player in that was a a guy called Sir, Sir George, and we've been calling him De Carteret, but I actually think maybe they were called Carteret from now, from this point on. Sir George Carteret. And he dropped the de because he thought he sounded a bit too French. <laughs> so I think there might have been a conscious choice to angla- anglicise themselves. We heard about the Carterets or the Carterets earlier. So they, they've they've been a big yeah. power in Jersey for a very long yep. time. So Yeah, they're the seigneurs of St. Owen, I think. He was born in 1610 and he rose to the rank of vice admiral in the English Navy despite little formal education. So he, he was a, real a, dummy. a go-getter. Oh, right. <laughs> we went different ways than that. Samuel Pepys, the famous diarist, used to slag him off for not knowing any Latin, which is just snobbish put down. With the outbreak of the English Civil War in the 1640s, Carteret uh, retired from the Navy because he didn't want to fight for the parliamentary forces. And he moved his family back home to his island of Jersey, where he'd been born, and uh, led some light piracy against the English ports in the south of England. So, uh, Just a spot of light piracy. Uh, he became an unpopular figure. He confiscated the property of any parliamentary sympathisers. So I think he was the bailiff at this point. So he went around sort of making sure people were on the royalist side, whether they wanted to or not. There was some indication that the average people were a bit more into parliamentary side of things, being as they tended to be a bit more Presbyterian, a bit more um, serious about their Protestantism here. As a result of Carteret's control and royalist control of the island, Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales, um, not the last Prince Charles, Prince of Wales, he was the son of the beleaguered king, and he was sent from England in 1646, when his dad saw what way the winds were blowing. He was sent into safety, first to the Scilly Isles, and then to Jersey, where he was given shelter for, I think, three or four months. He made his way onwards to Paris, to hang out at the court of his cousin, the eight-year-old Louis XIV, wow. um, who kept him safe. Manly, so hiding was, behind uh... his, his, his child cousin. <laughs> yes. And his, his mother was already there. She had been, she'd gone into exile much earlier because I think she was French. So she was quite closely connected to Paris. So yeah, Charles I saw that his, his kingdom was not in the best shape and thought it would be best not to have the heir, the young, I think he was 14 or 15, 
to have the young heir like you know die in battle. In 1649, Charles I uh, was indeed executed by parliamentary mm-hmm. forces led by Oliver Cromwell. To this day, it's not known exactly who executed him. It was quite a shameful thing for the executioner, so he never admitted who he was. And there was a, a period called the Interregnum, so England had no king. Uh, Oliver Cromwell appointed himself the Lord Protector of this Commonwealth, which is a kind of an old-timey yep. word for a republic. Which is, uh, yeah, an autocratic, military, theocratic republic um, of sorts. Led by Cromwell and whoever he liked. He even dismissed his own parliament, which kind of put paid to the idea that it was a, this was a democratic revolution. In response to this, George Carter had Charles II come back to Jersey and proclaimed king uh, in the Royal Square in St. Helier on the 17th of February, 1649. And so this was the first place Charles II was proclaimed king. Some people in Edinburgh had said he was the king, but they wouldn't let him come to Scotland unless he promised oh, to be a Presbyterian. Um, oh, God. So that didn't happen. So this is the first time he was pro- proclaimed king by his subjects on soil that was particular right. to the English crown, shall we say. So the big deal. He was there because he, he wanted to go and lead the royalists in Ireland in a, in a kind of a counterattack against Cromwell, but... Then Cromwell came to Ireland and... Um, Did he? <laughs> this this Cromwell you loved. You, sh- you should read up on that. Uh, let's yeah. not get into that. <laughs> uh, Cromwell was very effective at subjugating Ireland and we haven't forgotten it. In 1651, uh, the Commonwealth invades. Admiral Blake captured Jersey for the parliamentarians. Uh, so he tried to land in really bad weather and this ridiculous event happened where they kept sailing around the island trying to find somewhere to land. And Carteret was leading his militia up and down the island, up and down the coast on foot to try and be ready for when they landed. And everyone got more and more fed up, more and more mutinous, and they weren't really that into the royalism anymore. So when the parliamentarian forces eventually landed, only the St. Owen cavalry, those like from Carteret's own parish, stayed uh, the course. And ultimately Carteret had to retreat to uh, Elizabeth Castle on a craggy islet that we've talked about earlier, where he held out for two months despite bombardment with cannon and, and siege. Uh, like Charles had sent him permission to to, to um, surrender and he was like, no, this is my island. Yeah, and, and eventually he went into exile in France. I think there's a parallel later on in my section, but it seems to be a particularly tricky island to land at. Yeah, I mean, the coast is rocky and the, yep. the tides are crazy and it's well defended. There's, there's mm-hmm. castles and watchtowers. So yeah, that this is a feature. I just want to mention that Jean Chevalier has a diary from this time written in like the Norman French, which is quite cool. So that's a useful resource for getting details of, of this time. Um, and if you're interested, go check it out. Eventually Cromwell would die, his son would be ineffective, and the monarchy would be restored to England uh, and with Charles II as king. Yay for disappointing children. That's not our, our topic at all. Uh, a, a much more tamed king, though. You know, now England is a parliamentary democracy. Probably has its roots in the fact that Parliament did behead a king and showed they were willing to, and might do it again. But the restored king never forgot the gestures of kindness by George Carteret and by Jersey. Uh, Carteret was a privy councillor, an MP, and treasurer of the navy, and also vice treasurer of Ireland, which is a, a job that he then sold for eleven thousand pounds. You can do that. Good um, <laughs> way to make money. Okay. Apparently, you could. Yes. Um, he did have a few questions about whether he was corrupt or not, but uh, listen. 
In recognition of all the help given to him during his exile, Charles II gave Carteret uh, a large grant of land in the American colonies between oh. the Hudson and Delaware rivers, which is known by the name Jersey. of New wow. Jersey. Cool. So, Jersey, New Jersey. All right. It had been the New Netherland, and it's now a state in the United States of America, in case you've not heard of New Jersey. He also had a stake in the Carolina plantation, along with Baron Berkeley of Stratton, and as such, there's a Carteret County in North Carolina and a Carteret, New Jersey. Uh, and also Elizabeth, New Jersey, is named for his wife, not for Queen Elizabeth, as you might think. I assume they pronounce it Carteret as opposed to Carter Carteret. They do, yes. Definitely Carteret. Okay. Carteret County. Uh, he was also, of course, as a planter in the New World, heavily involved in the, the Royal African Company. Oh, um, I would just send our listeners to our episode on the Gambia to find out more about that. The Duke of York, who was Char- King Charles II's brother, uh, you know, playing a huge part in the Atlantic slave trade. And that did lead to some some protests during the summer of 2020 around mm. the statue of Sir John Carteret uh, in light of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, he's not a popular figure uh, right. due to his slaving past. So a disputed character, but a very important character in, in, in terms of royalism. Uh, well, hey, Charles also gave a royal mace to the island, and that's still carried before the bailiffs in all of their state duties to this day. One of the key bits of symbolism in the state's assembly is a royal mace of Charles II, which was given to the island in 1663. This is quite an important symbolic gesture for the island because it's again reaffirming our right to self-governance but our loyalty to the crown um, because the bailiff of Jersey and Jersey was essentially the last royalist stronghold in the whole of the Kingdom of England and Scotland as it was back then, quite different to our counterparts in Guernsey. Um, This is also brought around again when the symbolism of the colours worn by the officials So the bailiff has a red hat and a long red robe, whereas in Guernsey they have purple, which again brings around the sort of rivalry between the difference between the royalists and the parliamentarians from this English civil war. Yeah, that's a big part of my section uh, behind us. In uh, 1675, there was a new pier built at St Albans Fort, funded by duties from wine and cider. Uh, cider production got a bit out of hand to the extent that they had to actually ban new orchards being planted to the detriment of growing actual food uh, in 1673. Right. You can't survive on cider alone, unfortunately. No, no, it was the go-to drink and yeah, the things chill out for a little while. So you get acts of court forbidding soap suds being thrown in a brook, uh, curfews being put on taverns, normal stuff. Some more Huguenots turn up when the French start to oppress Protestants again. And in 1685, a survey by Philippe de Maresque uh, records that there are 3,069 houses and 15,000 inhabitants. Oh, wow. So that's where we're at population so, so the wise. previous uh, estimates that I had of five people per house is almost exactly correct, bizarrely. There you go. Big families. Into the 1700s, we get various fortifications being strengthened. So St. Albans Fort, Fort Regent. The rights to import duty-free to England get brought in, which is important to actually having a trading life. Uh, And there's lots of unrest this century um, over poverty, basically. The people are quite poor and the seigneurs and the lords are quite well off. And that's not a good recipe. Who would have thought that people would be annoyed by that? Yeah. In the 1720s, there was cur- they tried to devalue the currency from four liards to the French sou to six liards to the French sou. 
some 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 straight up nonsense there joe <laughs> yep uh, and a mob of militia drummers turned up to the and stormed the state's uh, meeting to have this reversed and it was indeed so that was one of our riots the bailiffs had become a kind of a hereditary office like de facto so the the carter family um basically inherited the office but they were increasingly living in london because as i said sir george carter had become a real player in the privy council and various uh, and on the death of charles carter a few generations later uh, with no heirs it passed to his distant cousin john carter the earl of granville who'd never been to jersey and would never come to jersey right so not only absent but like okay. never came at all he appointed a guy called charles lempriere as the lieutenant bailiff for the next 30 years, and this guy was uh, so autocratic by nature and not much liked. His family took up all the powerful roles in the island, uh, and the state's general was very weak against him. So this guy becomes a bit of a demagogue, a bit of a, a dictator of the island, and not even the proper bailiff. During this unpopular guy's um, rule in the 1760s, there were food shortages in the island due to mismanagement, corruption, export of wheat rather than, you know, eating it, and uh, rent, rent um, kind of feudal obligations to, to, to the seigneurs. This led to the 1769 revolution uh, against Lempriere. Um, basically, in response to all of this, these bad things, to quote a, a report from the time, a great number of people armed with clubs forced their way into the court, threatening the magistrates, uh, that if they did not comply with their demands, they would not let them go, lifting their clubs from time to time and striking on the benches. And notwithstanding the riders are granted every demand, they seem not yet satisfied, but broke into the inner court with such rage and fury that the opponent did not expect the court to escape with their lives. Okay. So they got 13 acts passed to kind of address all of their grievances, and the lieutenant bailiff fled to England. Wow. Uh, and didn't, didn't hang around as much. That's a um, heck of a riot. They're like, okay, we give in to all your demands. No, let's keep yeah. rioting. Like, uh, The Crown did try to get them to reverse all of their giving in, but they sent some Scots guards to um, you know, bring order to the island and realise that all of their complaints were fairly justified. So everyone was pardoned. So when your boss investigates the uproar in your department, is like, no, you're... Yeah, yeah, no, your 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 tenants you are right. Really you're, terribly. you're a terrible person. I'm surprised you didn't riot sooner. So Jersey's not in great shape. I do just want to tell you about one guy from Jersey who is such an eighty days all star. He can't not be mentioned. Okay, which is Philippe de Carteret. He circumnavigated the world with John Byron, which is Lord Byron's grandfather. Okay, uh, and founded the first British settlement in the Falklands, Port Port Egmont. Okay, um, so that's the kind of source of Britain's claim to the Falkland Islands. So go and listen to our Tierra del Fuego episode for more about that. And then, um, not content with that amount of circumnavigation, in 1766 he was made an admiral and circumnavigates the world again in command of the HMS Swallow. Ooh. Luke, do you remember where the HMS I Swallow? I remember Mark making a joke about that ship's name, but I can't remember what episode, remember what episode we met it in before? No. Uh, Pitcairn. Ah, yes. So, that was the ship that first observed the Pitcairn Islands. And Pitcairn was a midshipman who, who saw it. Pitcairn right. was, a, what, a 14-year-old mm. midshipman on, on on Carteret's boat. So we, we've met a Carteret before and not okay. realised it. Uh, and he named a couple of islands there, Jersey, Guernsey, Alderney and Sark. But I don't think they're still called mm. that. So, you know, Jersey's on the global stage in the form of at least one person. Nice. And a colony in America. Awesome. But uh, Luke, I think you're going to tell us about 
the results of Jersey not being in good shape. Is that that's fair? The late seventeen hundreds were not a great period for for Jersey at all. You sound almost no. reluctant to tell us. Just look, I'm kind of yeah. worried to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're in the in the lead up to the Napoleonic Wars here, and the the the, the French are are still keen on taking over this place. And nearby. Hmm. In 1779, there was an attempt by the French to uh, capture the island. The French ships arrived at the Bay of Huen. But uh, because of rough seas, again, as you mentioned earlier, Joe, they couldn't come close enough to disembark their troops properly. Yeah. As far as I can tell, they just kind of floated around uh, <laughs> off the coast of the island Waves uh, for a few days. I, I think the Jersey men shot at them at cannons They did, as well. yes. Yeah. Uh, but their, their troop transports couldn't cross the open water. Uh, under threat mm. of the guns in the harbor. So they basically just decided to give it up and turn around and went home. But there was a slightly more credible threat from the French that presented itself in January of 1781 when the final Battle of Jersey took place between the British and the French. According to the Island Wiki, which I think we've cited a couple of times already uh, and was a was a great uh, resource for this episode, they said perhaps it, because it was the last and also because the battle in which the French were defeated, spoiler alert, this invasion has been given undue historical importance because it was actually one of the <laughs> least uh, severe ever suffered by the islanders. So it's been kind of a tug of war between the French and the British for a long time, but this is kind of like the decisive battle. So the the French had sided with America against England in the American Revolutionary War, and they decided mm-hmm. to have another go at Jersey to protect American shipping from the British Navy. Because pirates again. Exactly. There's some talk of more than one trader on the island who had provided information to the French forces because when they did land, they were able to overwhelm St. Helier very quickly, and they actually caught the uh, the governor a guy called Major Moses Corbett in his bed. Great name. The commander of the British forces, uh, Major Francis Pearson, was given orders by the governor to surrender the island, sort of signed under duress. Well, they'd been written for him by the French. They woke him up and said, sign this. (laughs) Sign this order to surrender uh, before you put your pajamas on. But Pearson refused to surrender the island and instead uh, decided to go on the offensive. He wanted to retake St. Helier. And he eventually overcame the uh, smaller French force. But uh, Pearson himself was shot in the heart and died shortly before the conclusion of the battle. And so there are now a number of sites on the island named after him. And there's a very famous painting which was um, produced uh, by John Singleton Copley in 1783 uh, named The Death of Major Pearson. It's it's actually worth a look. It's a, it's a really nice painting, but um, basically it's, it's one of these very... Uh, you know, stereotypical, you know, all these Navy men in, in, in red coats, kind of with a, a gigantic uh, Union Jack billowing in the background and mm. drinking tea. Yeah. We'll link that in the show notes. And uh, the French commander, also a guy called Baron Philippe de Roulancourt, was uh, was killed in the fighting as well. So um, not a great a great outcome for either side, I would say. Did you come across the, the second in command of the, the French invasion? I didn't. There's a guy called Mir Saeed, an Indian prince, okay. who, who whose territory had been annexed by the British and so ended up fighting for France. Nice. And he he planned to ransack everything and put the town to fire and to blood. So the British were very happy uh, he wasn't in charge. <laughs> I, I, I can just, imagine so. I thought he was a fascinating character. Yep. Like I'd never even imagined someone like that would end up in a in an invasion of a small island in the Channel. In 1789, to put it mildly, things begin to kick off in France. Um, 
And very soon thereafter, uh, a guy you might have heard of called Napoleon comes to power and starts upsetting a bunch of folks all over Europe. A bunch Europe. of folks. He upsets Europe. Yeah. Europeans of Europe. Yeah. Another Republican who believed in yeah. democracy. Uh, during Napoleon's rule, <laughs> there were many Napoleon. French, uh, particularly those who were loyal to the monarchy, uh, fled to Jersey, took a short hop uh, across the ocean to, to, mm-hmm. to Jersey and lived there in exile. And up until, at least from what I can tell, the the Battle of Jersey, the island had sort of been leaning more towards French culture and French language. But uh, in the aftermath of that battle, even you know with those uh, exiles fleeing the French Revolution, the English language and culture began to prevail more strongly on the island. And that that, that is again what we see today mm-hmm. is that it, it it you know as far as we can tell anyway, people tend to identify more as British rather than French. Um, so I think that's that's kind of the beginning of that trend here. Luke was very patient with me in trying to explain it. So uh, yeah, Luke, Luke gave a kind of account of that here. Yeah, I think Jersey people on the whole, we do consider ourselves British. Uh, but I think it's one of those situations where we consider ourselves British most of the time, except for if we were in France or in Europe, and then we're definitely from Jersey. Right. right. Or if you're somewhere where perhaps the British aren't, aren't quite so light then you're definitely from jersey um there's a old gentleman that lived down the road from me and he spoke very good french and went to france on holiday a lot and he's in a restaurant and overheard some french people saying or the, the waiter or something saying that oh you know they're english sort of thing and, and sort of mouthing off about them and then he just turned around and said oh no no je suis gerrier saying that he was he was from Jersey, he was a Jerseyman, and suddenly they were all fine with him, all all right, because all right, it nice. meant that he wasn't English or British, however you want to phrase it. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it, in the truest sense, we are British, whether we do like it or not. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the local old boys will stick to their, no, I'm definitely from Jersey, I'm not British. But um, certainly there's advantages practically in terms of governance of being British, because as I say, we are uh, crown dependency we're, we're mm-hmm. dependent on the crown for certain political overseas um, affairs and our defense is um, controlled and provided by britain mm-hmm. but in terms of saying is it annoying when to have to explain it to people from the uk i think it's it's hard to explain that you are british and you still have the same queen as them but you just have a different government but that government is nothing like their government. Because people, I think, often try and compare Jersey to Gibraltar mm. or the Falkland Islands. It's completely governed in a different way and quite a different situation comparatively. Um, and in the end, I think most Jerseymen would just give up and say, yeah, yeah, we're like Gibraltar. Um, right. <laughs> just to sort of avoid the, com- to avoid the conversation. Just to, to move it on. Is there is there any chance I could ask you to maybe perhaps speak a few words of Jerrier just for the for the years of the listener and, and, and whether you have any uh, favorite choice Jerrier phrases you'd like to talk about? We oui. no Jerry is an interesting language, but similar to French, but some of it sounds anglicized or slightly different. Uh, Jerrier or Jersey French, as it's sometimes called, is essentially Old Norman French. But what's important to note about it is it a peasant's language. It's a farmer's language. Posh people in Jersey would have spoken formal French unless you lived in St. Helier, in which it was English. And that was more or less the rule until the Victorian era, when English took began to take precedence. But Gerrier was spoken right the way through into the occupation um, and was used quite a lot in the occupation, as the Germans weren't able to understand it. 
So good evening would be bonsoir, a few good phrases, one which there's actually a, a song in Gerrier which um sung by a local band called Le Badlebec, which is called Mon Beau Petit Jerry, which is beautiful Jersey. Um, if you were to say thank you in Jersey, you'd say Merci Ben de Fay. Uh, a Jersey cow is Avac Jarier. Or if you wanted to say cheers in the pub, you'd say Bon Santé, which essentially means good health. Jersey French is also, I like to think it's quite a romantic language because um, there's no sort of direct word for girlfriend as such. You would say a sweetheart, which would be mon cher. But cher is essentially directly translated as heart, which I think is quite sweet. Um, or a boyfriend would be un galant, which again is galant, gallantry, is a bit like my, my night. It's it's quite perhaps a little sickly sweet in some places. And perhaps one of the favourite phrases of even young Jersey people nowadays, it's kind of come back, um, perhaps more jokingly, but it's a good way to revive it, is how you'd say, uh, your good your good mate, you'd address them as Morvi. And then another one which isn't a sort of an official one, I'm, I'm not sure where it comes from or exactly what it means, but I've heard old boys use it. And again, it's one of those ones which young people like to use which again means my mate, similar to Morvi, which is my cock, which we would always, we would always spell C-O-C-Q, but you can see why that one's come, become quite popular again in recent years. Sure. In 1806, a census showed that there are only around 22,000 people on the island, but the early 1800s saw kind of an economic boom as well as a population boom. Um, so by 1821, just 15 years later, there were nearly 29,000 people. So more than a 30% increase in population. By 1851, I think there were about 60,000 residents. Wow. The economic boom was caused by shipbuilding, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Low taxes, uh, cheap labor, a low cost of living. And uh, there's a couple of other, other factors which I'll touch on later, including uh, cattle and potato farming. In 1837... Uh, Queen Victoria ascended to the throne and soon after declared uh, that there should be a change of currency ordered in Jersey. And I kind of couldn't believe this, but uh, the island was still using the Livre Tournois, which had been abolished after the French Republican government had been established in 1795. Okay. Oh, my. So for almost 50 years, uh, they'd been using a currency which had been discontinued effectively. And uh, coins were no longer being minted for this currency. So they, yeah, they eventually did manage to change that. And it became the pound, the British pound. That makes sense. Also a little bit about uh, Victor Hugo, uh, which I think one of you guys Mm. um, prodded me to mention. Uh, He was a a famous exile who lived on Jersey for a little while. When Napoleon III came to power in 1851, Victor Hugo was living in France and uh, he denounced uh, Napoleon III and his rule, and therefore was forced to leave France. He first went to Brussels, but ended up in Jersey in 1852, and stayed on the island for about three years. But he's actually more associated with Guernsey. He had to leave Jersey eventually because he supported a newspaper that had criticized okay. Queen Victoria. And I don't know why criticizing he, jerks. he sort of was told that he had to leave Jersey, but then ended up in Guernsey, which is another British Crown protectorate. But 
that's that's where he ended up uh, for a couple of decades. He lived there until the early 1870s, uh, and that's where he wrote his mo- probably most famous, best-known work, uh, Les Miserables. Oh, really? So, hmm. yeah, that's where he wrote it. Apparently, it was on Guernsey. So. Uh, in my conversation with uh, with Luke, he mentioned how Jersey has a slightly more kind of royalist flavor as compared to Guernsey. Uh, one of the reasons why they have that very strong connection mm. to Charles II. Oh yeah, Guernsey were big into so the, there might have been a bit of kind of local, um, you know, interest in in thumbing the nose slightly at at, at the royals okay. in Guernsey as compared. I'm just some supposition, but just uh, I, I also had a glance at kind of Victor Hugo as well. And something I didn't know is that uh, after his time in Guernsey, he, he went back to Paris when the political situation changed, and he was there when it was besieged by the Germans. Mm. And there was, there's a line in there because the siege was was really strict, and they ended up eating the animals in the zoo. And it was a quote. Yes, there. I heard about this. He was reduced yeah. to eating the unknown. Oh God! Yeah, eating the unknown. Yeah, it was first zoo animals, and then he just said the unknown. Oh, so, oh, yeah. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, Jersey and and Guernsey both built a reputation as prominent shipyards during the 19th century, with Jersey producing more than 900 ships in total. Wow! Which you know, I suppose during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, it's a good time to be a uh, a center of excellence for wooden shipbuilding because plenty of them are going to be sunk. Uh, one of the main ship shipbuilding centers was a town called St. Aubin, which is directly across the bay at the south mm-hmm. of the island from St. Helier. But by around 1890, uh, wooden ships yeah. were a thing of the past. And so most of the shipyards had closed and just two repair yards remained, oh. um, unfortunately. It's a blow. But there's, a, I believe there's at least a couple of museums where, that you can visit in that area nowadays. But they were replaced by steamships uh, and the steamships brought other advantages to Jersey, uh, along with upgrades to the harbour and the uh, increased development of the French and British railway systems for the late 18th and early 19th century, farmers began to find it easier to export agricultural products from the island. And although uh, around this time the wool industry was declining, although the name Jersey, as we talked about earlier, still stuck, the farmers on the island benefited from the development of two new products, which were uh, the Jersey cattle and the Jersey royal potatoes, uh, two things which the island is famous for even today. One was the product of careful and selected uh, breeding programs, and the other one was a complete fluke. Do you want to guess which was which? Uh, That's tough. I'm going to say they bred the, bred the potatoes and the cow was a fluke. Okay. It just fell out of a <laughs> box. <laughs> there's, 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 there's stories behind each. I'm going to tell you both. So Okay. Um, Jersey cattle were first recorded as a separate breed around 1700. And I didn't know this before, but apparently they are, uh, as, a, as a breed, very highly productive. In the late 19th century, uh, Jersey cattle were losing value because there was little to no controls on breeding. And a guy called Sir John Le Coutier studied selective breeding and became a fellow of the Royal Society. He was a Jersey native, I believe, and his work led to the establishment of the Jersey Agricultural and Horticultural Society in 1833. And he was a pioneer in helping to purify the breed and to improve its value. Dang. Yeah, sorry, Mark. Uh, today, the Jersey breed of cow is the second largest breed of dairy what? cattle in the world. Really? Yes. Wow. And on Jersey itself, there are fewer than 6,000 jerseys in total, with nearly 4,000 of those being adult milking cows. And there is a very strict ban, and there was, I think, uh, since the 1830s, on imports, oh, like right. importing other, um, you know, other breeds of cow. So essentially, the island is sort of ring fenced, so the breed can be kept pure. Doing my research on this, uh, I ended up finding a, a website called thecattlesite.com, okay. 
which I'm sure is a very reputable source. And uh, it tells me that Jersey's produce uh, milk components at a lower cost compared to other major breeds. They have little or no calving problems. That's good. Jersey milk has a greater nutritional value and the highest yield and greater greater efficiency when processed into cheese and other value-added products. Interesting, yeah. And Jersey milk uh, contains 18% more protein, 20% more calcium, and 25% more butter fat than average milk. <laughs> if you're not familiar with them, they're uh, typically like a, a sort of pale brown color. A good-looking cow, we can all agree. They are, they are. Very cowy looking. <laughs> yes. One, one, one must compliment their cowiness. It is mm, second to none. Yeah. And then the Jersey Royal Potato was a pretty much a fluke. And they also have their own website, jerseyroyals.co.uk, if you'd like to read more. But a, a quick summary, in 1878, a Jersey farmer apparently spotted two enormous potatoes displayed on the counter in a local store. Got a potato permit, this guy. Uh, he purchased both and took them home. Wandering around in a trench yeah, coat. Like, wow, look at those spuds. potatoes. Exactly. So he, he brought his friends over. This is how much there was to do in 1878 in Jersey. Got the boys. Yeah, he brought his friends over uh and showed them the two potatoes um one of which had 15 eyes uh which if you're familiar with you know the the process of sprouting potatoes that's where new potatoes sprout from sprout from um mature ones i guess Mm -hmm. and they cut the potato into 16 pieces which they took and uh, planted in a in a valley and the following spring they produced a big crop of potatoes which were uniquely thin-skinned and kidney-shaped and that was the start of the jersey royal potato which is worth about half of the income of uh, jersey's agricultural products in total nowadays mm. and the jersey royal enjoys eu protection much like you know champagne or, or parmesan. parmesan yep so if it doesn't come from that region it can't be classified as a as a jersey royal although it, it, that may not still be the case because of course the united kingdom left the eu so maybe it's not that is true. Mm. true true enough so uh, yeah i wonder what the base of the protection mm. is um, yeah well, well i think we'll get to that later actually we, we try to speak about that okay but the second half of the 19th century as opposed to the first half uh, represented a bit of an economic decline this was partially due to the decline in the maritime industry which i i talked about earlier uh that contributed to three bank failures between 1873 and 1886 which kind of further steamrolled the economy i guess a little bit but despite contributing to the economic downturn steamships did make it easier for visitors and new settlers to make their way to the island from the british mainland and by 1840 there were an estimated 5,000 english residents on jersey which again helped to tip the balance uh in terms of the the british culture over the french The latter half of the 19th century also saw the rise of tourism as an important industry, and that reached its climax in the period between the end of the Second World War to the 1980s, but has since declined. It was also kind of the birth of tourism, because, you know, people were too poor to go anywhere before, really. So, yeah, it was kind of sure. probably one of the first tourist destinations, I guess, internationally, super, supernationally. I guess so. I mean, if you wanted to, you know, go somewhere that wasn't England, but it was slightly removed, I guess, then... That's where you could go. And a little bit warmer. A little, just a teen, tiny bit warmer, yeah. By 1900, there were around 50,000 residents on the island. Throughout the 1800s, we had a boom and then a, a little bit of a bust. So population growth subsided a bit in the years running up to 1900, but it still more than doubled its population in the 100 years.
All right, so Mark, do you want to lead us into the 1900s? Sure, surely so. I, I, I'm not going to go absolutely kind of, you know, minute by minute through the, uh, the 20th century, but I, th I think there's there's a couple of big uh, events to kind of highlight here. And, and maybe some of the things we're going to talk about are not super well known about Jersey or even what, that well acknowledged, let's say, even within Jersey. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. That's what we do. Let's let's start with World War One. Frankly, uh, there's not not a, not a huge amount happens before then, uh, but um, you know it, it is a cataclysmic event for the for the island in in some ways. I guess kind of demographically, if you know generally where the fighting happened in World War One, it didn't happen very near Jersey, so they weren't you know uh, shot or bombed or gassed or any of the, the really terrible stuff. Um, but they did have 6,292 islanders um, who were estimated to have participated in the war and also another 2,300 uh, Frenchmen who were resident in Jersey when war broke out. Uh, and they left the island to enlist in, in France's uh, fighting forces. It's believed that approximately 1,500 men who were born and or lived in Jersey uh, or had you know, close family connections lost their lives in World War I. So it, it was it was a huge event for the island. Yeah, but in profile, not quite to the same level as as World War Two, as we'll see. In between the wars, you see a lot of uh, kind of development of um, rights for women. Positive thing. Uh, in nineteen nineteen, women over thirty were given the vote. In nineteen twenty four, women were allowed to sit as deputies despite uh, significant, let's say, opposition. Uh, apparently backed by many of the islanders, as they would not elect a female deputy until nineteen forty eight. Who was uh, Mrs. Ivy Forster? Um, felt felt important to actually uh, give her her name there, give her her due. In nineteen twenty eight, and again, this is a bit of foreshadowing. The first income tax uh, is introduced to the island with the maximum possible allowable by law of five percent. <laughs> How do they fund things without a? They have lots of capital. No, they don't have lots of capital gain. No, okay, just it was it was a very low tax economy. Uh, I think. Right. Uh, I suppose the state didn't do very yeah, much. Yeah, I do. I do so. remember reading that about the the economic boom that I mentioned. Yep. Like the taxes were incredibly low, but I'm not sure. Again, as you mentioned, Joe, exactly how they raised money. Yeah, I mean, it, it might have kind of contributed to the low cost of doing business that you mentioned, Luke. Uh, that they just didn't have costs generally <laughs> like yeah it, it definitely did yeah last thing i'm gonna mention uh, pre-war is 1937 how the airport opened ushering in expanded tourism for that time but uh before that they goodbye steamships <laughs> well no i mean they, i think there was still steamships and so on but um what was interesting to me was that, that before that they actually used the beach just beside saint hellier at low tide as their airstrip oh wow yeah ah. so that, that that was your way to fly to the country sorry fly to the island before then so you could only land at designated times i guess a exactly yeah so World War Two is kind of a biggie for Jersey. Jersey initially felt they'd weathered World War One pretty well, so they figured uh, they were going to market themselves as a holiday refuge from World War Two. The ideal resort for wartime holidays this summer was was the byline. Apparently, things deteriorated really fast, as you may recall, and London decided to clear Jersey and inverted commas an open place, i.e., will we we will not be defending Jersey oh. too close to the French mainland was, was, was basically the reasoning. The local royal militia was withdrawn to England so they could continue to be a, an actual fighting force. And the people of Jersey were given a stark choice, stay or go. Uh, approximately 10,000 people went to England and in many cases uh, joined the war effort in one capacity or another. The local bailiff was sworn in as the civil governor and was given the right to surrender. Um, and in doing so, he was, he was basically told, do the best that you can for the people of Jersey. Uh, surrender, you know, taking the best terms. 
On the 28th of June 1940, the island was strafed from the air and they surrendered on the 1st of July 1940, beginning five years of Nazi occupation. The Germans guaranteed the lives, property, liberty of, of peaceful inhabitants, uh, which didn't last long. And in 1942-1943, they sent out thousands of residents to internment camps, uh, mainly on the European mainland. First the British mainlanders and then what they would generally term general undesirables, uh, which given the context of the time and who is doing the undesiring is probably one mm. of the highest compliments they could be paid. Yep. So approximately 2,600 islanders were imprisoned uh, despite kind of strangely, the, the Germans were really keen that their occupation of Jersey go very well because they wanted to kind of show what great, you know, merciful, fantastic leaders they were. But they're Nazis. So inevitably they treated people like garbage. Slave labor uh, was imported from Spain, Poland, Russia, and the Ukraine in order to create a system of massive fortifications across the island, uh, many of which stand today. The occupation was financially crippling for for the uh, Jersey people. They were forced to pay the cost of the occupying Nazi army of about ten to sixteen thousand troops, oh. and many pensioners had lost access to their pensions. Income tax was raised to cover this to the present day rate of twenty percent. Um, people people loaned a total of six million from the banks to keep going because they you know they had no way to get money otherwise. And subsequently, the British government would settle that on their behalf after the war, which they were very thankful for. France was to be liberated in 1944. Uh, the German garrison on Jersey, and given all the fortica- fortifications they had, it meant that the Allies effectively quarantined the island. They're like, it's it's going to be too much hassle because it'd be too much bloodshed. And they basically just kind of let them ride out the rest of the war. They didn't want to be sending lots of food because they didn't want to be feeding the German army. So apart from five visits from the Red Cross ship Vega, no food was actually getting in. And when the island was liberated at the end of the war, people were really close to starvation. Um, I read an account of an elderly Jersey man writing to his daughter, as you see, we have not died, but we have been very cold and very, very hungry. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to bring in Luke at this point. So uh, he he has quite a bit to say about uh, about the kind of experience of of World War Two and just kind of what it meant to the people of Jersey. The occupation is very much culturally ingrained within Channel Island society generally, um, not just Jersey, but also our counterparts in Guernsey, Sark, etc. Um, growing up, I was quite lucky to grow up in a part of Jersey where a lot of uh, older people lived, and as a result, have received a lot of stories of their time growing up during the occupation. I think it's in the film, the Guernsey Potato Pill and Literary Society, um, a film made quite recently, um, there's a line which says, the war hasn't left yet. And I think that's that was true of Jersey for quite a long time after the occupation. Certainly it was a big traumatic shock, socially, culturally, um, mentally, emotionally, and even physically, because the occupation took, it took its toll. Um, the food shortages way worse than I think would have been seen in France and in Britain. I think a lot of islanders don't realise even the English people uh, were removed by the Germans from Jersey. I think it was in uh, 1940 or might have been 1942 but certainly early on in the occupation um, uh, order was given by the Germans in Jersey which basically said if you're English or your parents are English go down to the harbour and they were all sent to uh, a prison camp, most of them to Bad Verzac. Uh, a lot of islanders were deported, and the ones that remained um, didn't 
exactly have an, an easy time. Um, what's quite interesting, which I doubt would have come up in your research, is one of the lasting legacies and one which would have originated during the occupation is a Jersey term which was made for those women having affairs and or children with German officers or German soldiers, which was called a jerry bag, um, which was used as an insult for women who had such affairs or if there were children which there were some who remained in the island who people knew or suspected they had German parents or some of them did know because some of the German soldiers even stayed after that was a legacy and a term which would have been used to insult these families quite long after so yeah that's it's one that won't come up but it's but still nowadays it the term jerry bag I've heard used as an insult by people of all ages from when I was at school as a teenager through to you know the older generations who would have been the children of people from the occupation it's interesting how that's lasted as an insult it's a very difficult situation for islanders having to try and keep up the British culture to which you've become accustomed or your Anglo-Jersey culture, yet at the same time having a very Germanic one imposed upon you. The Germans changed the road signs, place names, schooling. Uh, German was taught in schools. Um, I believe there was even a contingent of um, German girls from the female section of the Hitler Youth who were sent to Jersey as sort of young cultural role models to try and influence young people in the island. And a lot of simple liberties were banned as well. You couldn't own a radio. If you owned a radio, you would be arrested, fined, and a lot of the time sent off to a prison camp in um, either Germany or France. And there were very tough fines. Um, lots of, not, quite a few people tried to escape the island. Um, and if they weren't killed in the process, again, would have been sent off. Um, but I think one of the biggest cultural shocks as well, which is, portrayed very nicely in another film um, called Another Mother's Son. And it's based on a true story of um, of which one of my old neighbours and a member of La Société Gersier's, who is still alive, he turned 100 last year, uh, Mr. Mr. Bob Lassoir, um, he was involved in this ring of Jersey men and women who rescued Russian, um, Polish, Jewish, uh, essentially forced labourers, then known as slave workers, who were brought to the island by the Germans under the organisation TOD, which was essentially um, a, a German unit which brought in prisoners um, of sorts of people who the Nazi regime saw as undesirable, and they constructed all the defences you see in Jersey. I mean, even if you go to Jersey today, it's littered with bunkers left, right and centre. I think there are about 15 underground tunnels. There are concrete towers. Uh, a lot of the sea walls still have anti-tank defences along them. It's, it's very visual even today. Um, and that's without the sort of cultural impositions that you have. And I, I think what's spookiest about the occupation, particularly if you look back in old photographs, is there's a very famous photograph of the early occupation where it's a British or Jersey policeman in the sort of traditional English bobby cap, the tall helmet,
standing with a German officer and uh, he's giving the officer directions. It's a very surreal image, but I think it's one which sums up the sort of the eeriness, the un- unusuality of it quite well. So, end of the war. Uh, Jersey bounced back economically really fast. Um, and kind of what we're kind of coming into is, is I guess, the big thing that Jersey's known for post-war and its, its mm. kind of economic uh, impact on, on, on the world. Yep. So initially they had the, the tourism, uh, which, was, which was good. Uh, they had uh, tomatoes, uh, potatoes, beef, dairy exports, all the things that you mentioned, Luke. Um, the returning soldiers to Jersey demanded some change and a more democratic approach to the island's governance, and that was adopted in 1948. So things improving on many, many fronts. Uh, in 1950s, uh, banking grew, particularly allowing UK people working abroad to remit funds in sterling to Jersey thus avoiding UK taxes. Uh, so Jersey is like mm. a you know floating tax loophole for, for, for wealthy British people abroad. Separately to that, there, there's other lucrative tax loopholes who were also being exploited at the time. So the, the island was doing really, really well from this. Um, and to, f- to kind of jump ahead a little bit, in 1960, they had 40 million sterling on deposit. In 2004, wow. it's 156 billion. Oh my god! And if you add in all of the assets managed by Jersey's trusts, it's 400 billion. This really worked out for Jersey. We haven't had a good tax haven uh, episode in a long time. This this is back mm. to kind of vintage eighty uh, days. It 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 is. Uh, and even though you know Jersey is not kind of a sovereign state necessarily in its own right, I guess in some ways it kind of is. But also in some ways it's not. It, it does have those advantages. It's kind of set its own tax regime um, and, and they have really done well out of it. In 1969, they tried to clarify the ambiguous relationship between Jersey and the Crown. Uh, in 1973, it was agreed that the Crown should have powers to intervene in island matters. But that's all they set out, really. And they didn't really clear up anything. And that that was it. And when uh, when the UK entered uh, the the european economic community jersey got pretty much all the benefits and none none of the none of the baggage so they did really really well out of all of that well done yeah well well done jersey do you want to talk about the flag luke yeah 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 flag talk flag talk um yeah in 1906 uh, a letter by the bailiff of jersey described the flag as the red saint andrew's cross on a white ground uh so basically a red x on a white field um and this flag was used to signal the neutrality of the channel islands during the wars between england and france although it doesn't seem to have done them much good as uh, you mentioned mark <laughs> well they're raising it it, it, it achieved them yeah. yeah and it was flown a lot during the german occupation as flying the union jack was obviously prohibited mm. but uh during the 1960s and 1970s there was a movement to alter the flag as most people felt that it was insufficiently distinctive uh, that there was too much confusion between it and the St. Patrick's Cross. Uh, yes, that's what which, I thought. It looks... Yeah, which is essentially identical, yeah. as well as the fact that the red saltire had been taken as one of the international maritime signal flags. Oh. Yeah. Uh, you know those flags that all boats carry? Like that. Yeah, that's a bit embarrassing. So they came up with an entirely brand new flag, which was just the same flag with the coat of arms stuck on it. Um, oh, rookie uh, mistake. Yeah, the coat of arms is red, uh, red crown shield with three golden leopards. Oh, I assumed they were lions. Me too. Yeah, no the leopards. It, yeah, I, I would have thought they were uh, lions as well. It's it's very, it looks very similar to the lions of England. The three lions yeah. is a uh, uh, English crest, I believe. But um, 
Yeah, these are leopards, apparently. Well, the, the, they are native to the island, I suppose. So, um... I think the bailiff was a leopard between 1922 and 1924. So, oh, yeah, that's okay, that's it. it. Yeah. That explains it. But um, this flag was adopted on 12th of June, uh, 1979, and was officially hoisted in April 80, 1981 for the first time. It's fine, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. And an average five flags out of ten. Yeah, yeah, maybe five <laughs> might be a stretch, but uh, yeah, it's fine. So those are very non-spotty leopards. I'm just looking; they're they're kind of fluffy. Is about all you'd say for yeah. them. There you go. Uh, well, th- th- thank you for for your flag talk. Uh, so, sure. Um, so I, I'm going to take uh, I'm going to kind of take a slightly different uh, direction uh, with the, the rest of my section. Uh, one is is a bit of a kind of a true crimey thing. Um, I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about something that's sort of a wider social thing as well. True crime. We're, we're getting into real lucrative podcasting territory here, Mark. It, it's a mashup of themes, uh, truthfully. Uh, but okay. uh, so I, I actually came across this story in a, on, a, on a, a true crime uh, podcast uh, years and years ago. Uh, and uh, oh, of course you did. Never thought I'd have the opportunity to come bring this up. So this is about the, the Beast of Jersey uh, uh, beginning in 1957. And this is going to run until 1971. During this period, the the island was terrorized by a spate of attacks on women and children perpetrated by somebody who became known as the Beast of Jersey. This person would either attack people, you know, through a home invasion. Uh, he might attack people out on the road in the middle of the night, drag people often with a rope uh, around their necks into, uh, you know, a clearing or private area and would attack them violently and also sexually, but non-fatally. He, he wasn't killing people. The man had a distorted face uh, or or a masked face uh, that's what people described he also stank prominently of must and he would cut and scrape his victims while he assaulted them uh, other features were that he had a pronounced irish accent complained about having dropped his cigarettes and in you know in various encounters people have with him he, he mentioned his wife as well the attacks would come in waves with years of respite in between. Uh, Scotland Yard were brought in to no avail. And in 1966, there was also a direct letter reportedly from the Beast themselves to the authorities. My dear sir, I think it is just the time to tell you that you are just wasting your time. As every time I have done what I always intended to do, and remember, it will not stop at this, but I will be fair to you and give you a chance. I have never had much out of this life, but I intend to get everything I can now. I have always wanted to do the perfect crime. I have done this, but this time let the moon shine very bright in September because this time it must be perfect. Not one, but two. I am not a maniac. Always a great line to write. Um, It's a little unconvincing. By a long shot, but I like to play with you people. You will hear from me before September and I will give you all the clues just to see if you can catch me. Yours very sincerely, wait and see. Oh gosh. Now... Uh, I, I don't have a good number for exactly how many attacks there were, but uh, it it's a lot. Like it's, it's you know, 20, 30. Like it, as I say, it's a lot. And as, as we'll get to... Too pro- many. Far too many, but also many possibly unreported as well. I'll get to why in a mm. couple of minutes. But bizarre on such a small island as well, a small community. Yeah. Well, it, it's such a small place that you think, well like it must have been absolute terror it's like it's in your small hometown this is happening again and again and again over years so yeah I, it 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 really stuck with me this when i heard it the first time i was like this is quite the nightmare 60 to seventy thousand people so all on island with this person they're they're stuck there with him 
So the, the, the night of the 10th of July, 1971, 11.45 p.m., a small car shot past some police officers running the lights and driving erratically. The car crashed and they arrested the man. The man stank of must and he had one-inch nails sticking through his coat and through cloth bands he had on his wrists. Mm. He carried an empty cigarette packet, actually several em- empty cigarette packets, a modified torch uh, only emitting a small amount of light, uh, and he had a black wig and bizarre face mask. The man was Edward John Lewis Paisnell, a native Jerseyman, not Irish, building contractor and married with a daughter and two stepchildren. He was known as Uncle Ted at his wife's children's home and even played Santa at Christmas. Oh, no. Yeah. Apart from his secret disguise room, which police later found, he was also one of only 13 men not to provide fingerprints when they interviewed everybody on the island to find the beast. So, you know, he kind of stuck out in that would have thought so, yeah. Uh, he was released in 1991, uh, died of a heart attack in 94, and... This kind of brings me to my next point. He also reportedly visited both legitimately as as himself uh, and in his kind of nocturnal alter ego as the Beast of Jersey, uh, other children's homes, including the children's home, Ho de la Garenne. Ho de la Garenne. So this is something I, I didn't expect to come across. I was, I was just kind of, you know, generally Googling uh, Jersey and, and this kind of popped up. In 2008, and this call comes from a, a, a Guardian article, there was a, a scandal at this former children's home. It's a, it's a youth hostel. And some human remains were found on site. And apparently there was lots of people very freaked out by this. And they found lots and lots of bits of bone. But apparently only a few of them actually came from humans. A lot were you know, just bits of animal bones and you know things you might find in a very, very old place. But there was an investigation because they're really freaked out about this. And uh, a lot of stuff came out through the investigation. Um, a lot of, you know, abuse and just awful nightmare stuff. Um, as a result, uh, eight people were prosecuted and many, many more kind of dead abusers were identified, including, as I said, Edward Paisnell. So potentially some of his attacks may never have been reported just because, you know. He was connected with with powerful people. Well, I mean, his, his, his wife ran a children's home, so... Yeah. One would be surprised wow. if he wasn't attacking any of the children there. Uh, but apparently also he, he there there were accounts that he snuck into other children's homes as well with you know his mask on and so on. Uh, and yeah, there was a Jersey senator implicated and also apparently Jimmy Savile, uh, who's a children's uh, TV presenter mm. in, in the UK, who's, you know, ubiquitous with uh, child sex abuse. But there was also just lots of just awful stuff done to children, people's mouths washed out with uh, with soap and you know, li- on, on a literal basis, uh, hitting children with stinging nettles. There was an account of um, uh, a young girl who was forced to stay in a room overnight with a dead nun. Uh, you know, just really crazy, crazy, awful stuff. Um, but the, the, I mean, I'm not saying all this to have a kind of, a you know, list out many miserable horrible things uh that that's not kind of why i'm bringing this up but something kind of occurred to me because it it talked about the end uh, at the end of the article as to why you know so many children had been put into care uh and a lot of it relates to the to the occupation by the nazis these are the after aftershocks of of that basically yeah it's 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 the ripples that kind of continue to emanate mm. out from the 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 kind of the the, the tragedy and the trauma the, of the, the occupation yeah. community trauma e- yeah. exactly and you know it's a small sunny idyllic kind of island and it, it doesn't really fit with its its image it's, it's kind of curated as you know 
wealthy tourist destination kind of place. It, it is it is completely at odds with that, which is probably why they, they kind of struggle to. Um, so just to give an example, uh, there's a guy called uh, Gifford uh, Aubin. He told the inquiry he was taken into care during occupation when his father complained about a local brothel frequented by the Nazis. Uh, another man said his father had been deported to Germany and he was caught stealing to help feed his family, resulting in him being taken into care. Uh, and during and after Nazi occupation, children fathered by German troops were among those taken to care also. So there's lots of different ways that children were left be- left behind in, in kind of Jersey society. And it's not a big, you know, Jersey society. As, as we know from Ireland, this is something that happens yep. in every society. Uh, when people mm-hmm. kind of ignore what happens to kind of marginalized groups in their society. Um, but yeah, I, I just found that really, really interesting that the kind of the impact of the Nazi occupation just emanated for, for decades on. Uh, and I actually chatted to Luke about kind of this specifically, and he, he had kind of interesting insight as to how all of that is viewed now. Yeah, there's certainly been an historic taboo around the subject. I think even now there is still people know of it but i don't think they quite know about it um there's been a lot of looking into the historic abuse in jersey in recent years by the government and in fact there was a proposition put forward by a member of the government to erect a monument as a apology slash remembrance of those that historically abused in Jersey and it was being faced with a lot of criticism to the point where I don't think it's going forward anymore. And it, was a, it was a very very sensitively done design but there are a lot of islanders who in fact perhaps even a majority of islanders who didn't think it was appropriate to put that into physical memorial. Um, and what's even more interesting with the Hotel Guren case is, of course, the building is still standing, but it's still a youth hostel centre today. Not a children's home anymore in that sense that it was, but it's a youth hostel. Um, I actually stayed there for a weekend doing my Duke of Edinburgh award with school, and it was very, very um, unnerving. And, and there were people there who knew about it or heard stories or you know, you, as you do when you're that age in school, you go to somewhere like that and people make up stories, but that's sort of the the, the main knowledge of it is quite rumoured still. And I think it's something which is going in the right direction now and people are looking into it. Um, and certainly um, in the over the last couple of years, a, a lady has been commissioned and she's the Jersey Children's Commissioner and social work in Jersey... Um, over the since you know in my childhood uh, growing up in Jersey has you know, it's skyrocketed in quality and you know it is a it is a very safe place to grow up um, and I think in terms of I think Jersey has historically been behind in its established looking after children especially through the social care route but we definitely have caught up if not we're very near catching up and I think perhaps even leading the way. In, in that sense. So on sport, uh, not loads and loads because they're not, uh, you know, an international force per se, but they, they do kind of feed into uh, some of the UK's sports that they have um, 
uh, a national football team, kind of. They, they play in the Murati Cup against the other uh, Channel Islands, and they also compete in the Island Games when that comes along. Mm. We've, we've kind of covered that in the past. There's a guy called Colin Campbell, who was a track athlete. He represented Great Britain in the Olympics in 68 and in the 1972 Munich Olympics as well. And he also competed in the bobsleigh discipline in 1976 uh, Winter Olympics. Oh, so That's a bit odd. Yeah. Uh, good, good on him, I guess. Uh, and also uh, the Open, which is... To, in, in Britain, they call it the Open, which is a bit, you know... For, for everybody else, it's the British Open. Yeah. Um, but uh, there was two uh, golfers from Jersey who, who won it uh, seven times between them. Uh, a man called uh, Harry Varden uh, and a man called Ted Ray. So, yeah, pretty, pretty good golfers cool. as well. Uh, I have a little bit here on the economy. Sure. It's a highly developed uh, market economy nowadays, not so much re- reliant on agriculture anymore. Biggest industries are international financial services and legal services, which account for around 40% of the economy in 2019. Again, considered to be, uh, in in polite terms, an offshore financial center. Uh, according to gov.je gdp per head of population in jersey in 2019 was around forty-five thousand pounds which is around sixty-two thousand dollars which puts it roughly in the same neighborhood as singapore denmark and qatar it's a nice neighborhood it is a nice neighborhood to live in yeah uh tourism has fallen quite a little bit in uh, recent years around 1997 close to a million tourists uh visiting the island that year uh, and that figure has fallen to around 725,000 in 2017. But the industry still makes up around 8% of the island's economy. Any little bit on food? There's a, a little kind of tart cake thing called a Jersey Wonder. Uh, sweet cake, mm. similar in consistency to the donut, uh, but neither filled with jam nor coated in sugar. So actually, it's like a plain bread <laughs> roll. <laughs> sounds like, it sounds worse than a donut. Much worse, I would say. Uh, there's also uh, the Ormer, which is like a mollusk, which is like the abalone, uh, which they, they think is very tasty indeed. And a thing called a Jersey bean crock, uh, which is very much in line with kind of their links with northern France. Very stewy. Uh, I think there's quite a, quite a few bits of meat in there. It's like a cassoulet thing. So, you know, it, it, does, it never includes duck or goose as does the Southwest French version of the dish, but it does have dried beans and pork, uh, and the pork is preferably on the bone. So it sounds delicious. It does. Mm. Uh, there's a few famous people, famous-ish people from Jersey. Henry Cavill. Oh, Superman. The guy yeah. who plays Superman. All right. He's he, he's from there, apparently. And also Graeme Lasau, famous footballer uh, of, of yesteryear. Nigel Mansell turns up again. I don't think he's actually original from here, but he turned up in our Isle of Man episode. He's from everywhere, apparently. And uh, Gilbert O'Sullivan, who's, uh, I think, a singer-songwriter. Mm. I think he's Irish, isn't he? But he, he definitely has lived there for a long time. He, he moved out there. Oh, uh, and one other thing, for, to most people in the UK, if you say Jersey, they think of Bergerac which was a cheesy 80s uh, crime detective show about a detective who just did some detecting on Jersey. But uh, that's the other big cultural tour de force. Victor Hugo and Bergerac uh, are, the, are the two, I think. No, not bad. Yeah. I think your man who founded Butlin's Holiday Camps retired here as well. Uh, okay. If that's okay. something you want to know. Just to, to cap off the tourism. Um, oh, right. Pantheon. This is where people who know about tourism go. Uh, they, they don't go to Butlins, I can tell you that. <laughs> um, uh, maybe we can hand over to Luke just to do a, a last mention of some of the kind of cultural uh, festivities on, on the island, which there seems to be a flip of a lot from talking to him, actually. For sure. If you were to spend a year in Jersey, the calendar in the normal year without COVID-19 is packed. 
uh, especially between May right the way through until November, lots happens in Jersey. The big ones to note culturally are obviously the Battle of Flowers, which occurs in August, um, a big community event um, similar to a carnival or a parade. And most parishes have a Battle of Flowers committee. And essentially it's where children and adults go usually to their parish, although there are some privately done floats, and they make big floats out of wood, a chassis, usually pulled by a tractor, um, papier-mâché, and then it's decorated with flowers or dyed grasses. It's paraded along the avenue um, for a day, and there's very serious and strict judging that's done. It gets very competitive. And then the day after, you have what's called the Moonlight Parade, where it's the same again, at dark and all the floats are lit up um, and usually you'll have a variation on the music it'll be a bit more sort of shall we say young scene maybe a different you know a bit more party music if that's the right term to use and throughout the year the Battle of Flowers committees will host uh, bingo nights or certain fundraisers and community events such as fates um, and Trinity Battle of Flowers often do a bingo night followed by Jersey Bean Crock which is a local meal uh, which is served and cooked by everybody, a bit like a potluck and all eaten at your parish hall. Um, but as well as that, we have Liberation Day, which is perhaps one of the key significant days, which is the 9th of May, celebrating the liberation from the occupation in 1945. And that's a big day. You get the day off school, day off work. Most of the island goes down to Liberation Square, and they do a reenactment of the British soldiers coming over and liberating the island, and then there's a big parade with military veterans, the cadet forces, old vehicles of the time, and it's quite it's quite a patriotic day. It's, for the big anniversaries, we usually have a royal come over as well to give a speech. And the speeches by um, the bailiff and the governor and that sort of thing. Later on in October, we have something which is very specific to Jersey, which is called Le Fazi de Cide, or the Cider Festival. Mm-hmm. This is held by Jersey Heritage at a place called Hampton Farm, which is a country and life museum. Children come in and pick apples from the orchards, and volunteers will pick apples. And then it's all crushed in a traditional Jersey cider press, um, usually pulled by a horse. And they make the cider from that season's apples in the orchard. And it's usually a weekend-long event where they make the cider, drink last year's cider, eat lots of food, and usually you'll get... um, some local bands down there singing in Gerrier or French and playing accordions. It it's brings back something which, as I say, would have been very commonplace in Jersey culture, but nowadays has fallen out of fashion and sort of keeps that tradition alive. Um, and off the back of that, usually that time of year as well, you'll have uh, the making of black butter or le nier as we'd call it, which is something which doesn't sound very nice, um, but it's more of a, a jam or a preserve which is made with apples and spices and it's it's very smooth it's you can have it with your cheeses or you can have it on crumpets or scones or anything along those lines okay uh we'll wrap it up there then um so yeah if you want to learn more about uh jersey you can see the links and photos and maps and, and that in our show notes uh which should be available in your podcast player we would also like to thank our patrons generous support over this uh, season and seasons past and thanks in particular to luke davis for his contribution to this episode you've heard clips of him throughout this episode so thanks very much to luke 
Luke also wanted to give a quick plug to a couple of things. Um, I got linked up to him through the uh, Société Jerseyes, which is the kind of general cultural society jersey. So uh, they have a website, which is societéjerseyes.org. Uh, and they also contribute to kind of the slightly more accessible uh, website, uh, jerseyheritage.org. Uh, and they also have a Jersey Heritage podcast and so on there. And there's also a National Trust for Jersey. Uh, but uh, yeah, and a specific thanks to Luke Davis, uh, sound.net. Yeah, I would, I would also throw a shout out to um the island wiki i don't know if they're um you know the people there are related but mm. i think we can all agree we all agree that it's, it's it's a huge help they've put a lot of information on the it's the best resource to help, there, yeah. help us learn about their island and it is it is a huge help when we have a website like that that kind of lays out information quite quite clearly and quite uh succinctly uh which we we don't often have when we're doing these episodes so mm-hmm. if you're in any way involved no. with the island wiki uh thank you so much you made a I mean, this episode a lot easier to put together. Um, you meet some beleaguered podcasters very happy. Exactly. So if you want to find more episodes of this podcast, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can also find us on social media at 80 Days Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to get in touch with us directly, you can email us at 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, if you'd like to support the show, you can visit us at patreon.com forward slash 80 Days Podcast. Or if you would like to support the show but don't have the financial resources to do so which is fine uh then you can leave us a review in apple podcasts that is the best way for new people to find out about the show and uh definitely helps us um to reach more people which we're always looking to do and you can just invest your money in jersey (laughs) for a while and then come back to us no comment um okay well uh that's that's been jersey so um thank you for listening and uh we'll see you guys next time bye bye À la prochaine